0: step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered and then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? Shh. It's the
1: Film Flamers. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey
0: everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we are going to be talking about one of our favorite horror movies on what is a very dark and stormy afternoon here in Texas. How is it in Boston right now?
1: Oh, it's uh... It's a nice 87 degrees. 87?
0: Clear. (laughs) my god, it's like 99 and like 110 in the fucking like heat index in Texas. Good lord. I need to move to Boston.
1: Mm. Please. Can I live with you? Sure. If you like couches. Okay, I'll get your bedroom. What?
0: (laughs) So, yeah, we have been waiting for a long time to talk about Alien, and I think that we have just found the, the perfect time to do it because we're going to be covering Alien and Aliens this month, another deep dive. Um, and I know that these are two movies that Chris and I love very, very much, and we're just ready to dive right into it.
1: Yeah, and maybe a year from now, we might cover Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. Who knows? And maybe the year after that, we'll cover Prometheus and uh, uh, Alien 5, Prometheus 2, whatever it's
0: called. <laughs> <laughs> What is it called? Covenant. Alien Covenant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we might as well. We're doing the whole like Romero Dead series. We might as well just cover some other series in other months too. But it's the sequel to whatever Prometheus was about. <laughs> yeah, for real. We we do need to talk about that movie because I have questions. <laughs> so. But so say we all. That is another story. Today we are talking about Alien, which is a 1979 science fiction horror movie directed by Ridley Scott and written by Dan O'Bannon, based on a story by O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. The film follows the crew of a commercial space tug vessel, Nostromo, who encounters the eponymous alien, a deadly and aggressive extraterrestrial set loose on the ship. Ooh, eponymous. That sounds mm, scary. I know. <laughs> the film stars
1: Tom Skerritt, Sigourney fucking Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, rest in peace, Ian Holm, rest in peace, and Yafit Kodo. It was produced by Gordon Carroll, Walter Hill, and David Geiler through their company Brand New Wine Productions, and it was distributed by 20th Century Fox. The alien and its accompanying artifacts, including the spaceship, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, were created by Swiss artist H.R. Giger. While concept artist Ron Cobb and Chris Foss designed the more human settings, the film score was composed by Jerry Goldsmith. For this deep dive, we'll be focusing on the theatrical cut of Alien, as the director's cut actually shortens the film and adds like some unnecessarily unnecessary scenes that kind of contradict some of the established mythology of the series. So that's why we're going with theatrical cut. I think it's perfect the way it is.
0: But before we get so deep into the story that no one can hear us scream. This is Alien.
1: The commercial space Tug Nostromo is on a return trip back to Earth with a seven-member crew in stasis. Captain Dallas, played by Tom Skerritt. Executive Officer Kane, played by John Hurt. Warrant Officer Ripley, played by Sigourney Fucking Weaver. Navigator Lambert, played by Veronica Cartwright. Science Officer Ash, played by Ian Holm, and two engineers, Parker, played by Yafit Kato, and Brett, played by Harry Dean Stanton. Detecting an emergency transmission from a nearby planetoid, the ship's computer, Mother, awakens the crew. Company policy requires any potential distress signal be investigated, so they land on the moon, sustaining damage from its atmosphere and rocky landscape. Parker and Brett repair the ship while Dallas, Kane, and Lambert head out to investigate. They discover the signal comes from a derelict alien ship and enter it, losing communication with the Nostromo. Ripley deciphers part of the transmission, determining it to be a warning, but cannot relay this information to those on the derelict ship. Meanwhile, after examining the inhuman, fossilized body of what could be the ship's pilot, Kane discovers a chamber containing hundreds of large, egg-like objects. When he touches one, a creature springs out, breaks through his helmet, and attaches itself to his face. Dallas and Lambert carry the unconscious Kane back to the Nostromo. As acting senior officer, Ripley refuses to let them on board, citing quarantine regulations. But Ash, the ship's science officer, overrides her decision and lets them inside. Ash attempts to remove the creature from Kane's face, but stops when he discovers that its blood is an extremely corrosive acid, which burns a hole through multiple decks of the ship. The ship is now mostly repaired and the crew lifts off, anxious to get away from the planet. Later, the creature detaches from Kane's face all on its own and is found dead. Kane awakens with some memory loss but is otherwise unharmed. During a celebratory final crew meal before returning to stasis, Kane begins to choke and convulse. As the crew panics, a small alien creature bursts from Kane's chest, killing him and escapes into the ship. After a hasty funeral for Kane, the crew attempts to hunt the creature with tracking devices and capture or kill it with nets and electric prods. After mistaking Jones, the crew's cat, for the alien, Brett follows the cat into the landing leg compartment, where the now fully grown alien attacks him and disappears with his body. After a heated discussion, the crew decide the creature must be in the air ducts. Forming a plan, Captain Dallas enters the ducts with a flamethrower intending to force the alien into an airlock, but it ambushes and kills him. Lambert implores the others to abandon ship and escape in its small shuttle, but Ripley, now in command, explains it will not support four people and maintains that they'll continue with the plan of flushing out the alien. Now with access to Mother, the ship's computer, Ripley discovers Ash has been secretly ordered by the company to bring the alien back no matter what, crew expendable. She confronts Ash, who attacks her and tries to choke her to death. Parker intervenes and clubs Ash, knocking his head loose and revealing him to be an android. As Ripley recovers from the attack, Ash's head is reactivated and they learn he was assigned to ensure the creature's survival. He expresses admiration for the creature's psychology, unhindered by conscience or morality, and taunts them about their chances of survival. Ripley cuts off his power, and as they leave, Parker incinerates him. Down to three, the remaining crew decides to self-destruct the Nostromo and escape in a shuttle. As Parker and Lambert are gathering supplies, They are attacked and killed by the alien. Ripley initiates the self-destruct sequence, but finds the alien blocking her path to the shuttle. She retreats and attempts unsuccessfully to abort the self-destruct to buy herself more time. With no further options, she makes her way to the shuttle and barely escapes as the Nostromo explodes. As Ripley prepares the ship and herself for stasis, she discovers that the alien is on board, having wedged itself into a narrow space between the bulkheads. She runs to an equipment closet, shuts the doors, and quietly puts on a spacesuit. Carefully returning to the ship's controls, she straps in and uses gas vents to flush the creature out. It approaches Ripley, but before it can attack, she opens the airlock door, nearly blowing the creature into space. As it hangs onto the ship by gripping the frame of the airlock door, Ripley shoots it with a grappling hook. As the airlock closes, the grappling line catches in the door, tethering the alien to the shuttle. As it pulls itself into the engine exhaust, Ripley fires the engines, blasting the creature away. After recording the final log entry, she places Jones the cat and herself into stasis for the trip home to Earth. The
0: End Okay, so uh, before we start talking about the movie itself, uh, Alien was initially screened for an audience in St. Louis, but that showing was marred by poor sound quality. Another screening at at a newer theater in Dallas went far better, eliciting genuine fright from the audience. The film was previewed in other American cities in the spring of 1979 and was promoted with the tagline, In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream.
1: Alien premiered on May 25th, 1979, on the opening night of the fourth Seattle International Film Festival, as the Midnight Movie. It received wide release on June 22nd. The movie was a commercial success, opening in 90 theaters. It grossed 3.5 million over the four day memorial weekend, and in its first four weeks, it grossed 16.5 million before expanding to 635 screens
0: but there was some box office drama. Yeah, So Fox claimed that in the 11 months of its first release, Alien had lost the studio about $2 million, despite its apparent success. Seen as an example of Hollywood's creative accounting, many felt this was a tactic used by Fox to disguise film revenue and limit payments to Brandywine Productions. This was decried by industry accountants and, by August of 1980, Fox readjusted the figure to a $4 million profit, although this was also refuted. Eager to get to work on a sequel, Brandywine sued Fox over their profit distribution tactics, but Fox still claimed Alien wasn't a financial success and didn't warrant a sequel. The lawsuit was settled in 1983 when the studio finally agreed to start work on an Alien 2.
1: Ultimately, including re-releases and international success, Alien grossed over two hundred million dollars against a projected budget of eight to fourteen million.
0: And you know, when we're talking about this money, we have to remember that nineteen seventy-nine dollars is not twenty twenty dollars. So when Mm -hmm. we say that it made, you know, sixteen point five million dollars in four weeks, that's a lot of fucking money in nineteen seventy nine. So people were watching this movie like crazy. Alien holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. Um, its audience score sits at 94%, and the site's consensus reads A modern classic, Alien blends science fiction, horror, and bleak poetry into a seamless whole. Critical reaction to the film was initially mixed. Some critics, who were usually
1: not favorable to sci fi movies, ended up with positive reactions to the film's merits. Others, like Variety and Leonard Malton, were mixed or negative. A review in Time Out said the film was an empty bag of tricks, whose production values and expensive trickery cannot disguise imaginative poverty. <laughs> oh, Jesus!
0: <God. laughs>
1: Another Calm Dickensian down proclivity with that reviewer, paying by the by the syllable.
0: <laughs> For real. In a 1980 episode of Sneak Previews, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were critical of Alien. Ebert called it basically an intergalactic haunted house thriller set inside a spaceship and one of several science fiction movies that were real disappointments as compared to movies like Star Wars, Close Encounters, or 2001 A Space Odyssey. However, it did eventually make its way onto Ebert's Best Movies list, where he gave it four stars and said, Ridley Scott's 1979 movie is a real original. Siskel gave the film three stars, but wrote, For me, the final shape of the alien was the least scary of all of its forms.
1: All right, well, we're going to get into that a little bit later, because I have a theory on why these reviewers, especially male reviewers, had an issue with this film after it was first released, and then later, you know, did an about-face.
0: I can almost read your mind right now, I mean, (laughs) So uh, let's talk a little bit about the accolades. So Alien won the Best Visual Effects Oscar and was also nominated for Best Art Direction.
1: At the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Original Score by Jerry Goldsmith.
0: So the Baptists were a little bit more kind to Alien. So it won Best Production Design and Best Soundtrack. It was nominated for Best Score, Best Supporting Actor for John Hurt, Best Promising Newcomer for Sigourney F. Weaver, Best Costume Design, and Best Editing.
1: So what I don't understand is why there's a Best Soundtrack and a Best Score and why it one best soundtrack but not best score
0: so soundtrack back in 1979 as far as the BAFTAs were concerned was like sound mixing and sound production right okay yeah and yep. the score was the music
1: okay well, at the Saturn Awards, it won Best Director, Best Supporting Actress by Veronica Cartwright, and was nominated for Best Actress, Best Writing, Best Makeup, and Best Special Effects.
0: So, I think it's safe to say that this movie was really highly regarded by people, and it did win awards like during award season from various outlets. And this is not including like other people who have like recognized it along the way or different uh, film festivals that showed the movie before its wide release. I think that people were really hungry to see Alien and give it a lot of like a Awards, you know,
1: that it was due. Well, the ultimate success of the film led Fox to finance three direct sequels over 18 years following its release, each with different writers and directors. Sigourney Weaver remained the only recurring actor throughout all four films, and the character of Ripley became the thematic core of the series.
0: Numerous novels, comic books, video games, and toys were manufactured, including Aliens vs. Predator, which later became a film series with the movies released in 2004 and 2007. Ridley Scott directed two prequel films, Prometheus, in 2012 and Alien Covenant, in 2017.
1: You mean Alien 5, Prometheus 2? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: It's a much better title. That was its working title. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> In
1: 2002, Alien was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the National Film Preservation Board of the United States and was inducted into the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress for historical preservation.
0: Here, here. The film was routinely placed at the top of horror and science fiction film lists, and is ultimately viewed as one of the most influential science fiction and horror films of all time. Amen. So with all that being said, let's uh, let's deep dive into Alien, shall we? We shall. So how do you want to talk about the movie itself? I mean, like, obviously, we've seen this movie many, many times individually. Have we ever watched it together? I can't even, like,
1: think. So the way I see it, this movie has five acts, right? We have okay. the beginning, um, you know, and then we have essentially the planet, and then we have repercussions of what happens on the planet. Revelations of, you know, what's actually going on and then the escape, right? And so it's it's pretty clear with those sections. You could even say the beginning and the plan are kind of like a one big cohesive setup, but I think they're different for different reasons. I do want to talk about the very beginning because there's just visual storytelling overload. We uh, get, that's
0: the first thing on my notes list too. It's <laughs> like so yeah. much visual activity.
1: We get the the very, very slow pan of space that really sets up the tone and the pacing for the film, which is extremely slow and like defiantly and just like purposeful throughout the whole film until it just like zooms up really, really fast for those horror moments and then slows back down again, which I think was incredibly smart and we'll get a little bit more into that later. So in, in that overture we get like the slow, like almost readout or hieroglyphic looking you know, title card of Aliens slowly over like the space of like, I don't know, two minutes or something. It's pretty long, you know, and then we slowly get start kind of introduced to the vastness and the, you know, the, almost the claustrophobic aspect of space as, as we get into the ship and we're detecting the emergency transmission and the ship is waking up and then the people are waking up. And it's such a masterful style of visual storytelling, in my opinion, because. It just sets up that the setting and the tone and, you know, the kind of ship this is, um, you know, all in one. This is a used universe. These people are not, you know, spick and span scientists. You know, this ship is not for, you know, scientific exploration. This is like truckers in space. You know, before <laughs> we even get a line in the movie, you know, you can kind of see that this is not a sterile environment like we've seen in like 2001 A Space Odyssey.
0: I really like, uh, this beginning act because I think that even for like the basic layperson going to see a movie, if you have no idea about how like narrative flow works or even how like film is set up from a visual standpoint, I think that everyone can sort of understand what's going on as soon as Alien starts, right? We see like the ship itself and the, the massiveness of what they're like bringing through space, right? We get to see the ship from the inside and we are sort of like given like, access to the different areas that the story is going to unfold over the next two hours before we even start to see where all these people are sleeping and see them start to wake up and even that is just like an amazingly beautiful visual moment Mm -hmm. where all the doors lift at once and then everything is sort of like time lapsed right and we see them waking up slowly and then we get into the story Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and I mean like you know when the computer starts to wake up and we know that something's going on in the ship and I mean, it just really just sets up the entire story so well in a silent, except for the score, which is incredibly important at this point in the movie, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. With the score and the visual storytelling and everything else, it's almost like a, like a little section of Fantasia or something yes. with all of them slowly f- waking up.
0: That's exactly it. I mean, like, if you're making a short film, you could just sort of end it with that time-lapse scene of them, like, getting out of their pods, you know? And they'd be like, oh, like, that was a really neat, like, short science fiction movie, you know? And I just, I love it. I just love the intro to this film so much.
1: Yeah, and this is something that I don't think a lot of movies had done before is really show, especially as they're getting up and they're having breakfast. You can't really tell what they're talking about, but they're having really, really you know normal conversations normal people would have these are working class people you know kind of just doing their jobs and just shooting the shit you know and um, i feel like a lot of science fiction movies before had really shown like these are the scientists and the military and and you know people in space that know what the fuck they're doing and part of the the setup for this is that these people
0: don't know what the fuck they're doing in this situation and it's part of the horror and you're right. I mean, up until this point, mostly like science fiction and science fiction horror had to do with <clears throat> scientists or astronauts or people who are trained to go into space, you know, and it's not it's not commercial by any means. It's put on by the government. And this is not. I mean, this is a company, the company, who's paying for this and people are like entitled to shares of what they're out there like salvaging or tugging and... I mean, and, and like the conversations they're having at that table are sort of like, but now we just woke up. We think we're almost close to Earth. Let's talk about how much money we're owed kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And then <laughs> they, know. they
1: get the news of why they were, you know, they don't immediately know why they were woken up. They, they believe they're on their way back to Earth that they're about to dock. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not until they get into their seats when they realize that they're nowhere near Earth. They were stopped and diverted to some sort of emergency beacon of some kind, which by company policy, they are dictated to uh, visit and check out because it could be a source of extraterrestrial life. And if they don't, it's forfeiture of all their shares. And so there's that talk about like, I don't want to do this. I want to go home, you know, like. Uh, can't we just take do our jobs and just go home and get paid? and there no, you can't. We have to do this. It's going to add 10 months to our trip or, or whatever but or we're still 10 months from home but we've got to do this because otherwise you're going to lose all the money that you you've otherwise would have made on this trip.
0: And I think that when they finally get to the bridge to sort of like suss out where they're at in space or figure out what's going on or why they've been woken up, we're sort of like now privy to the character's hierarchy, right? That we really Mm -hmm. didn't get a lot of when they were eating that breakfast, right? We get some little like at work bitchiness between Sigourney Weaver and Veronica Cartwright's characters where they're like, it's not our system, you know? And like, you're starting to see like where these people fall in line as far as like the ship is concerned. And when they, they finally get that revelation, that we are they're not close to Earth and they have to sort of figure out exactly what's going on the movie really really starts rolling at that point and we, mm-hmm. I think we need those characters to show us who they are individually and show us who they are in the inner workings of the ship to really start the story exactly and they do a really good job agreed and then of course we get down to the planet
1: where, you know, harsh environment, the ship is kind of damaged, so they're kind of stuck there until it's fixed. Meanwhile, this crew, you know, at least three of them have to go out and check out this derelict ship, or at least as far as they know, the source of this transmission. And of course they go in there and we're subjected to stuff they have no idea. They've never seen before, we've never seen before, this kind of organic looking, you know, almost biomechanical looking you know spaceship with a lot of mystery around it that's never explained and that's very smart because it just adds to the tension that there's this weight of mythology and history behind this that we still don't know and is never explained in the film and is mostly not explained in the sequels (laughs) like who is the the gigantic you know pilot looking fossilized creature that serves as some foreshadowing for something that had going kind to of exploded out of him, you know. What is the spaceship? And then, as they discover the eggs, the hundreds of eggs below, were these things being stored? Are you know, uh, were they placed there afterwards? Like, we don't know anything, and that's just uh, adds to the mystery and the suspense and the tension of of the the whole story.
0: Yeah, and I I really enjoy these moments on the ship, <clears throat> and I think that like. As I've watched Alien throughout the years, I've come to enjoy this segment of the movie just so much more and appreciate it from its, like, horror qualities, right? Yeah. When Kane is going into that, like, incubator of eggs, right, it's, like, very tense and very, very frightening. And, like, the moments where he's looking at some of those leathery eggs and seeing something move inside – just really like makes me feel scared and makes me like anxious to see what's going to come out of that. And like, we are given a huge surprise and it has a great payoff.
1: Well, and I love how it's kind of done as far as shown to the audience is like through their eyes, through their shitty cameras Uh that people can see watching like Ash is back on the ship, watching them. And, um, and then it goes to like the wider pan, you know, cinematic view of what they're looking at you know and it's i, I almost wonder if it's the first time or one of the first times in film that you see from like this crappy video perspective a the uh, uh, aliens the sequel and like sunshine when you see through their helmets and things like that from their perspective and just the shitty view that they're getting you know it's it's really puts you in, in the in the moment in a way that i think just the cinematic the pure cinematic view and film of the of the setting can't really accomplish on its own
0: And I mean, so finally, I think that the movie is leading up to this point because it's called Alien and we know that we're going to be you know, treated to some sort of extraterrestrial life. And this is the moment that we start to see it in one of its many forms in the movie Mm -hmm. when it bursts out of that egg and attaches itself to Kane's helmet and eventually burrows into it and attaches to his face. Right. And like it's so quick. And we have no idea, really, like what it is, what it's doing. And then we are like, we, we see a shot, another one of those big wide shots of them carrying his body, like through the like wilderness of that moon. And I think we also get to see that from Ash's monitor as well, right? A bit, yeah, yeah. So we as know that something's not good and it leads up to a like I think a pivotal moment in this movie you know like this is the re- this is the point where alien becomes alien right mm-hmm. when they have to decide whether or not to let them on the ship
1: oh yeah and uh of course it's uh sigourney you know kind of being if you were on that ship would you have called her a Karen uh... you know she's she's kind of being a little bit of a Karen.
0: I mean, she's doing her job, though. You know, she
1: is. But there, here's these crew. Here's your friends. Here's your shipmates. Someone needs help. He's not dead. He needs, you know, uh, medical expertise. To twenty four hours of quarantine, who knows what the fuck that's gonna do? I mean, You're gonna not let him in at that point either. I mean, like. What's the what's the the, what are you trying to do? You're trying to protect your ship. You're trying to, you know, kind of run things by the book. Yes, she is correct in what she's doing for her job. But is she doing the correct human thing? And I don't don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I, I my tendency is obviously to be on Sigourney fucking Weaver's side, Ripley's side, because if she had been listened to, maybe, you know, some of this wouldn't have happened. And there's repercussions, you know.
0: Well, let's just say for shits and giggles that you are Sigourney fucking Weaver on the Nostromo and there's an alien attached to a crew member's face and you're following quarantine protocol. What do you do, Chris? If it was you you, with the alien on your face, I would have let you fucking in. And I would have too, you know? And so like, (laughs) but I I really enjoy her exchange at this part in the movie. I think that she, this is where I think that she really starts like some really good acting in, in, in the film where she's like, Yes, I hear you, yes, but the I love answer that. is negative. And I'm like, this just She stays on,
1: she she stays calm. She's like, "Yes, I can hear you, but the answer is no. I'm following protocols. I am in charge right now. I'm going to speak to your manager, you know." <laughs>
0: well and I I think that we can see shades of this throughout the movie as we go on through the rest of the acts right I think that I think that Ripley is ready to become captain she doesn't want to but she's ready she knows how I just don't think that she wants yeah. to do it right and I I think that her performance is so masterful in these really quiet moments like this and it's just so you get the good. feeling
1: like she knows how to do everyone else's job mm-hmm. you know and they're all annoyed that she, that she can too you know <laughs> especially by the people below decks that are you know literally trying to make the engine uh, fix the engine
0: so they can just take off you know when she's like I'm coming down there he's like why is she coming down (laughs) (laughs) and nothing she's gonna be able to do (laughs) who has not said that about their boss anyway like I'm gonna come see you why is he coming down I mean like fuck
1: and it's interesting kind of looking at the rankings of this because she's the warrant officer which basically means she is the she's in charge she's the very very top that you can be on top of like the civilian uh, shipmates, crews, right. and I get the, that she's basically, that's basically includes everyone except for the captain, uh, Dallas, and then Ash, the science officer, and I think those are the actual like officer
0: officers and, and Ripley's
1: working on, you know.
0: Well, and also Kane, I think, is the executive officer. I think he outranks yes. Ripley, right? Yeah. So. Uh, You know, we'll we'll talk about Kane more later on. That's a whole character that I also enjoy very much. But I mean, once they get back on that ship, obviously, um, she has said no quarantine protocols say you're not coming on the ship. But science officer Ash lets them on and he says so like pod doors open. Right. And then like everyone comes inside. Yeah. And we get the full extent of exactly what's happened to Kane. So Kane has this life form attached to his face, you know, multiple legs, almost like an arachnid with a large tail wrapped around his neck and they don't know what to do with it. Right. And so like, I think that we're, we're given a scene in this movie with like some really basic science fiction tools, right? They seem just out of reach in 1979, but sort of attainable. Right. Does that make sense? Like they, They like can scan his body with something that looks like a Xerox machine, you know, and look inside and they determine that this creature is feeding him oxygen because it's got some sort of tube down his throat. Right. Mm -hmm. And we also get to realize like just how sort of dangerous this animal is just in this like sedentary like state. They try to cut off one of its legs to detach it from Kane's face, and it shoots this, like, acid out of its leg that starts to go through the hole. I always love that. Moment. I still remember
1: the first time I watched this movie, and I was like, that was the moment where I was like, this, there's something inevitable about this. There's mm-hmm. nothing they can do. Because I started to try to work the problem, you know? And to... Um, Parker's credit, he keeps repeating, why don't you freeze the fucking
0: body? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he really is fucking smart. He was like, just freeze him. When we get to Earth, we will have more doctors, right? And he's exactly right. I love that scene where they cut that leg and the acid starts to go down through the layers of the ship and they're following it to see how far yeah. it will go. And I'm like, you know, by the time it gets to a place where they think that it's stopped, you know, and he takes Brett's pen and sort of like fucks it up. And I'm like, you guys are fucked. Like really. <laughs> I'm like, like if if this thing is like bleeding acid, you can't do anything to it. Like you're on you're a just, spaceship, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, do you wanna like suffocate to death if it goes all the way through the ship? Like there's nothing you can do at at all. And it's just like it's so um, like sad and scary all rolled into one. If you put yourself in the positions of these people, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, what have we done? And then you have to go back to Sigourney fucking Weaver and be like protocol. I mean, like quarantine bitches. (laughs) So I mean, shit. Yeah. It really gets going.
1: Well, I feel like there was ways around that, but obviously what we find out later is that Ash is not about killing the alien or removing the alien. He is about saving the alien, keeping it alive and taking it back to Earth. Because I feel like, you know, there are things that you can do that, you know, neutralize acid or at least can keep it into, you know, drop that into special material, stuff like that. But that's neither here nor there because we wouldn't have a story, you know? And and it all works like a perfect puzzle piece because Ash ended up being what he is. You know?
0: Yeah. And I, I think that we we get to know who ash is during these scenes right because there are some times that uh when they go into the uh medical like sick bay Mm -hmm. when the creature has detached itself from kane's face and they're trying to find it right and um ripley goes into a corner and ash is like no not in the corner not without this light you know he's like he makes it seem like take care of yourself but he's like look out for the alien here's a flashlight to look for it
1: right and (laughs) yeah yeah well yeah, it's it's a little shocker too. Is oh is that it is. what that is? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, 'cause he he touched it to the um yeah, it's like a little flashlight shocker thing. And that's that's what I believe anyway, especially because he like goes you know, and the face kind of like puts its fingers in, you know, as a oh, yeah, yeah, you're as right. a little response, you know, after it's already dead. Um but that's another thing about Ash, it's so annoying is because he's like, You need to come up here and look at Kane and they're like, What's going on? Well, you just should come come here.
0: Yeah, like, it's easier it's to explain that, if you just come see It's not that
1: difficult. The thing fell off. You don't know where it is. And then later, when he wakes up, he's like, mm-hmm. you need to come up here in Kane. And he's like, okay, what is it? And he's like, oh, well, it'd be easier if you just came up and looked. And I'm like, just fucking communicate, man.
0: <laughs> like, I mean, what if what I are? was the captain of that ship, I'd be like, no, tell me what's going on. I'm busy. <laughs> you know? I'm like,
1: God. <laughs> yeah, that like, happened like two or three times. And I'm like, Ash, like... <laughs> I want it to be a surprise. <laughs> like such a little drama queen
0: android we got on our hands. There's a point in the movie, too, where uh, Dallas is making a comment. He's, like, saying, this is what we're going to do. And, like, the fucking side eye coming from Ash at that moment. I was just like, oh, my God. You're, like, Space's gayest little science officer, aren't you, I was just like, come on now. Yeah
1: well it's it's funny too because there is a little bit of foreshadow when they're actually on the planet and they're actually in the ship and he loses contact he says something under his breath and i couldn't quite catch it but i think it's something like well it doesn't matter anyway if they if they make it and i was like what so it's kind of under his breath you miss it blink it and you miss it but he says that as soon as you kind of lose contact with them and he's just kind of slightly smiling at the at the monitor as they lose
0: contact and i'm like oh shit there's, there's a little bit of subtle foreshadowing for, for Ash as we go through. And there's lots of quiet moments like that in this movie. where People are saying things like sort of like just out of like audible reach of your own ears, right? Mm-hmm. And it just sort of leads to the mystery and tension of this film, right? But you're right. I mean, so like ultimately Kane wakes up after the creature has detached itself from its face and they lift off back to the Nostromo.
1: Yep. Yeah, and uh, we get to the heart of this movie, which is the dinner scene you know, where it essentially explodes from his chest when they think everything's fine. Ash is kind of watching him. You can see, cause he kind of knows what's going on. If he had scanned, he would have known, you yeah. know? And so he did know what was going mm-hmm. to happen. He just didn't know when I would, I would presume. And so while that's happening, of course, we'll get into some of the details of that scene later with uh, kind of some fun facts behind the scenes for that. But it's uh, definitely the scene where people had the most visceral reaction, I would say in the theater when this came out, and it well, is extremely famous.
0: And and I completely agree. It wasn't until this particular viewing for the podcast that I sort of got an idea in my head about this scene, right? It's kind of like a Last Supper, right? And I'm sure that somebody else has already come up with this, you know, on the internet or something, but I kind of view Kane as a Christ figure in this movie. Right. And this is like, sort of like the end of it, you know, and maybe like later on in the episode, we'll, we'll talk about some ideas about like Kane as a character and how I think that fits in. But I think that like for all intents and purposes, we can sort of call this a last supper for all of these people, because I mean, they're going to start getting picked off one by one. Yeah. So
1: this is where we ultimately, you know, they see the little thing come out of them, come out of him, the chestburster. And, and is revealed and then it runs off into the ship and they have to try and go hunt it down with nets. They, d- they don't think it's going to grow that fast. So they go with like, you know, the little motion trackers and, um, you know, the the little electric prods, I guess. The yeah, more powerful the ones. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and of course we get our first kill with Brett,
1: Harry Dean Stanton. And, I have uh, to
0: ask, the first time you saw Alien, did you know about the chest bursting scene? I don't think so. I remember I I really tried to
1: kind of rack my brain of the first time I watched this. And I remember just, just being shocked by that kind of knowing the inevitability that something was going to happen. You know, obviously the movie couldn't be over at that point. You know, it's obvious something this. you know, that, that the main villain had not appeared yet, the main monster, and that it was going to appear somehow. And, um, so I think the audience knows that something's going to happen. They just don't exactly know how or when. Exactly. And it just it kind of happens so quickly and so shockingly, you know, that the audience is kind of like the the crew watching it happen, you know.
0: And I agree. I mean, so like uh, my mother is a huge fan of Alien and she saw this movie when she was pregnant with me because Alien and I are the same age and uh like she was i don't know like five months pregnant or so with me and she just had this most visceral reaction to that chest bursting scene and when she discovered that i loved horror movies as a young kid like i watched alien probably when i was around like seven or eight, Oh my I would god say around the time that aliens was coming out in the theater it's a little early <laughs> and i mean she showed it to me and uh like she didn't tell me and i was just like oh my fucking god <laughs> just <laughs> like, what in the actual fuck is happening? It's a really harrowing scene, that Last Supper, right? Especially when he's like eating and talking about life moving forward. And then all of a sudden he's convulsing. They think he's having a seizure, trying to get a spoon in his mouth. But this little like alien pops out of his like chest, stomach area. And I mean, yeah, like, I was completely floored by it. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad that she didn't tell me to like close my eyes or here's what's going to happen. Cause I will never forget like being so shocked the first time I watched that particular scene. But even
1: then that's the most shocking and like jump scare moment, I'd say of the whole film, or at least the singular, if you were going to pick one, that would be it versus to me, the scariest part of this film, the suspenseful nature of going through the air ducts after, Brett has been killed, and they they realize the thing is gigantic now, and that they think it's going through the air ducts, and they've armed themselves with these flamethrowers. Sigourney Weaver, you know uh, Ripley, volunteers herself to go through, but I think out of some sort of um, feeling of guilt, you know, for for wanting to break quarantine and everything else, Dallas, you know, Tom Skerritt says no, I'm going to do it. He even goes and talks to the mother and says, like, what are my chances? Like, he knows that he's going to die and he doesn't. So he kind of sacrifices himself willingly knowing what he's kind of walking into. And um, so he he goes into those air ducts and you can see those motion sensors. And, the you know, the, obviously the alien has the ability to be completely still and kind of defy those, um, those readings. And so it kind of sneaks up on him. You don't know where it is. It's completely claustrophobic. It's completely dark. Mm-hmm. They're all watching just like we are as the audience. They are the audience, what, you know, kind of seeing what's going on, only available to talk with him over these you know, voice comm and then seeing his marker on the, on the motion tracker. And then we see the alien for about a, you know, a split second, and he's gone. And that whole sequence was, I just remember being the most harrowing for me watching it for, for the first time.
0: And I mean, like when are talking about Brett dying, right? So he's the first person to go after Jones, <laughs> right? That cat is always like getting lost and having to be rescued. And so he's there. And I think that that's the first time that we really get a glimpse of what the alien has become after it popped out of Kane, Yeah, this is right? before
1: the, the air duct scene Bef- with Dallas. Before,
0: Yeah. That's really our first, like, visual glimpse of what the alien has grown into in this Mm -hmm. really quick amount of time, right? When Brett is standing there, like, calling the cat, and that alien is sort of, like, coming down from the rafters behind him. And he had just had this moment of all this, like, water falling from, like, the coolant area of the ship or whatever, and he's, like, you know, refreshing himself. But he had also found the skin
1: of the thing that it had shed.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. And so, like, we see how big it is and, like, what it's capable of. And that first glimpse of the alien, like, very quickly as it kills Brett, is just horrifying to me. Like, it is a massive creature with, like, defense mechanisms that we can't even fathom at this point. Yeah. You get,
1: a, you get, you kind of see its form, you kind of see its head, you kind of see its inner mouth for the first time, and you see its tail and what it's capable of as, like, just like this living
0: weapon. Oof. Have you this is silly, but have you seen this like family guy thing where they do like an alien parody where it's an alien talking and his little mouth comes out and he's like, Get back in there, little mouth. I have to like <laughs> I'll just send you that clip. Okay. Anyway. So
1: at this point, after Dallas is dead, um, and Kane is gone and Brett is gone, uh, Ripley is now in charge of the crew. And so she ends up being able to talk to Mother, and she finds out that this was all planned and that ash is kind of in on it with secret orders from the company that the crew is expendable and she is just so shocked and disappointed and depressed and angry you could see all of that and it's really well performed and then we get the kind of explosive battle between her and ash where he tries to kill
0: her and the huge reveal that he's an android And she makes it no secret that she's going to find out what's going on. She has a whole conversation with him and she's like, well, I have access to Mother now, you know, and like she goes and like gets all that information. And that that sequence where they're fighting is is also shocking, right? Because Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm. He starts throwing her around, and I think we start to realize that he's maybe more than just, like, the science officer that he is,
1: right? Well, she's starting to sweat this, like, milky stuff. Right. And you're not sure what's going on. And Uh you're like, wait, is he what... He, we think he is and then you know he starts to start suffocating her with like a rolled up magazine very phallic and um you know makes you wonder if there's some symbolism there well there certainly is yeah and, he
0: shoves it in her mess
1: <laughs> yeah to try it yeah but he's obviously much stronger than she is and he just grabs parker when he shows up just just claws him in the chest and it's just unbearable pain for parker and so they just realize we just got to fucking kill this thing and just uh knocks his goddamn head off and even then he's a threat (laughs) you know (laughs) so that whole thing um you know, that was also shocking. This is just a group, just a continual parade of shocking scenes for audiences uh, that they'd never really seen before. And we'll get a little bit more into that later. But I love this reveal and I love that it was in the film because um, it almost wasn't.
0: Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm sure that's going to be a fun fact. So just hold on to that. Sure. But I like th- when I first watched this movie as a kid, I didn't know what was going on. When they knocked his head off and it's sort of like halfway off and there's like wires coming out, you know, I sort of got it. But it wasn't until later on that I realized the full. Extent of exactly what Ash is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that whenever they have his head, you know, displayed on the table and they're trying to like jumpstart it into talking again, it's really when you like realize like the extent of who Ash is the character, what he is, not human, obviously, and just like how far reaching the company goes to protecting this particular alien. Yeah. So now they're
1: down to three, and I think. Now that they can survive in that shuttle, that Lambert, you know, said, "Hey, let's just all go in the shuttle." And Sigourney says, "No," nope. you know. Ripley says, "No." Four of us—it's too many to survive in there. So now that they're down to three, she just completely aligns with Lambert and says, "The best office is a good self-destruction."
0: Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so they—they they do basically hurriedly. They're like, "There's, there's not much we can do." Um, you know, they're going to grab supplies, and uh, you know, meanwhile. Sigourney's trying to get the ship ready uh, and find the cat. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, Parker and Lambert are both killed, so basically simultaneously, by the alien.
0: But that's a, um, also a really good scene. And let's, let's talk about like, horror in 1979 and moving forward. In Alien, we are given the last three characters of this movie, really, to survive, are two women and an yeah. African-American man. And how often does that know. fucking happen yeah. in horror movies? I mean... It's so impressive. And God bless Lambert. I mean, Veronica Cartwright in this movie, I think, is really good. Like, she's she's the scared person that all of us would be in that particular situation. I mean, I think that most of the lines that she has in this movie are like, oh, God, oh, God, you know, and you're like, you're right. But
1: she has some good ideas. Almost everyone in this movie has good yes. ideas, even though they're sometimes emotionally, you know, excitable like a Muppet. But, you know. <laughs> We would be too. God damn it! I,
0: I would. I would have been dead. I would have not have been part of those like two women and African American man. I would have been the white man dead like a long before they even got to that point.
1: Yeah, he would have like tripped on a rock on the way to the ship. Probably.
0: Shipping. Would have been like, are we going to eat again or what?
1: I mean, like, God. I'm just going to pop outside and smoke a cigarette and stuff in the atmosphere. I'm going to smoke a cigarette and look
0: for the cat. I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be right back. Uh, But yeah. So once, once those two are dead, once uh, Parker and Lambert are dead, you know, Sigourney Ripley is on her own in the ship and, you know, she's initiated that self-destruct moment and it's too late for her to stop it. Right. And so she's got to get on that shuttle with her cat and get away from it before it explodes.
1: Yeah, and there's this false security because you think the alien it was gone when she came back. You know, she tried to shut down this the self-destruction because it was in her way and she needed to buy herself more time. She couldn't, and so she went back, but the alien was nowhere to be seen. So, you know, she gets in, she takes off these huge for whatever reason, you know. 2001 a space audio style like three different explosions (laughs) with different visuals you know that happen you know uh just when you think the 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 first explosion's over the second one happens just when you think that's over the third explosion happens i I don't know what's going on here but whatever so she you know is getting ready she disrobes And, uh, essentially finds out that the alien is on the ship with her, stuck between, you know, the bulkheads. It really, they did a really good job of matching the production design of that ship to the production design and creature design. Of, of the alien because it really kind of matches those rounded bulkheads i think that we can really really well th- you can see it in, earlier in the in the scenes
0: i think we can safely say that the production design of this movie is just phenomenal i mean like oh, sure the building of that ship from the quiet moments of the beginning of the movie to like this the safe security that she feels and finally discovers the alien in the shuttle i mean like this is like The production design is amazing because Mm -hmm. I didn't see that alien. It took me a long time to figure out exactly how it was like nestled in there to where even she wouldn't have noticed it. And it's just amazing. Also want a side note before we forget about it. For those of you who are like thinking about designing spaceships for the future and you have a self-destruct mechanism put in there. Don't make it so hard to stop. Like, make it hard to start, but don't make it so hard to stop. She had to go through, like, exactly like retrace her steps back. And she's like, okay, I'm like putting this this cylinder down again. And I'm like, my God, just press the button. Yeah. I
1: mean, I have some notes about that later, too. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, she gets this false sense of security after the, the ship explodes. She's escaped. She's the final survivor. She puts, you know, Jonesy into his little pod that she's going to get into later. Then she discovers the alien is there. So cleverly, you know, um, hidden. And then, you know, she she runs to that closet. She gets on the to the slowly gets onto the spacesuit and then goes and, and does her thing, you know, and and is very smart and calm. You could tell she's scared. She's, she's scared shitless, but she's doing what she has to do. You know, she's singing herself a little song. She's, you know, slowly, she's like, the first thing I have to do is get it out of there. So she does that. She puts on these little, um, you know, gas vents to, to kind of get it out, but not like so much that it just panics. And then it's about to get her. And she opens the airlock door and she had strapped herself in. So she, you know, she had this plan and it's just so, so well done. And I love that the, the movie did lull you into that false sense of security and she's getting ready, you know, and uh, kind of the sequel does the same thing. It's very interesting how they, how they kind of mirror that
0: with the, you know, explosion and then thinking you're safe and then nope. I was getting so many Halloween flashbacks watching this movie this particular time in this particular moment when she goes into that closet, right? And I mean it was it was very similar to Jamie Lee Curtis going into that closet to like escape Michael Myers, but also like, you know, find to make a plan to mm-hmm. sort of like end the situation. And you know, I I don't know how much Carpenter, you know, influenced these people or how well they knew him. I know that Daniel Bannon worked with Carpenter a little bit. Well yeah. th-
1: literally for Dark Star, yeah. Carpenter was the director. You know, and so I'm sure a lot of people had worked on Dark Star that worked on this, and I'm sure that Dan O'Bannon was you know influenced by that he was influenced by a lot of things and so this uh you know but i don't think that particular scene was done by dan o'bannon and i'll get into that later too
0: i was just getting so much halloween from that when she like put herself in that closet and she's like what do i do and i was just like okay like i'm getting so much deja vu right and i'd I'd never experienced that while watching alien before so i don't know why my mind just went there you know for that but yeah it definitely would have if it had like kind of come through the shutters all right so Pantygate, gate yeah i mean like this is a big topic for a lot of people who watch alien and i mean i know that it's divided some people like it and some people don't but let's uh, let's get into it for a minute what is your opinion
1: now that because i think you went and looked up information about this to see what the kind of the different views are i have not done that i have my opinion but i'd like to hear your educated one first
0: <laughs> well so I was looking up I know that Alien is a very studied film and essentially I was just looking up articles to see what people think about the study of Alien and a lot of it has to do with you know Sigourney Weaver's character like stripping her clothes off at that last point in the movie right and you know before we get into any of that I mean as far as the studies of Alien go I Ripley Scott has said like there was no message in it that he just wanted it to work on a very terror visceral level right but obviously people have read more into alien than that i found this quote from slate.com who was talking about just like the academics of alien not necessarily the movie itself and they were talking about the different sides of that panty moment and so this quote says for a brief moment in the early 80s it looked as if the brave new world of alien studies was going to splinter irreconcilably on the issue of officer Ripley's panties the anti-panty camp <laughs> the anti-panty camp accusing the pro-panty wing of uncritical phallocentrism the pro-panty caucus accusing the anti-panty wing of re- of repressive and self-defeating assumptions of what constitutes sexism so i mean like that really doesn't explain anything except that there are two sides to this, really. And I, I really think it just depends on who you read or who you trust or where you go with your own gut or brain on where you lie. Yeah. So
1: to me, I think that as written uh, or as, you know, as it was plotted, it makes complete sense. Because at the beginning of the film, as they're waking up, we don't actually see Ripley waking up kind of laying there as much as we see the men. Right. And I could swear I could see some John Hurt scrote at the very beginning He was of wearing film. something
0: really odd looking, you know, when the doors pop up. And I was like, is he like have some sort of like towel wrapped around him? He could have found some boxers to put on or something.
1: Yeah. But all the men are, you know, in their skitties, Yeah, you know, at the very beginning. And this movie has enough uh, interesting things for men, I would say. That we can get into later that it kind of escapes that assumption i think and i think the way it was written or plotted for for sigorian to kind of get into that sp- state before she's going to be in stasis again makes complete narrative sense given the how stasis had been kind of shown to us at the beginning especially showing all those men and not really showing us the women laying in those those uh, pods and then i would also say that there is one particular shot of her that does seem like male gaze to me a little bit. Oh yeah. You know, know and I think that's the shot where she kind of takes off immediately and she kind of just like goes at an angle and she's looking at her binder to the side, but her front is to the camera and it almost looked like just like a pose. It doesn't look that natural. And so I'm thinking on the day that a scene that really would have been very matter of fact and incidental and normal turned into in that one shot kind of a kind of a sense of male gaze so i think there's both i think there's a gray area here i don't think the film or or the story is at fault here i think maybe just that one little shot was just was just you know the cameraman and ridley scott being fucking men i don't know
0: and i mean like i to me i understand narratively why she's doing it why she's getting down to her skivvies to get into stasis right we have already seen it before like you said um i don't think that they had to put those kind of panties on her, right? I mean, they could have had a little bit, something more like militaristic or whatever. Yeah, I have to imagine that some of the clothes that they are given are military or company grade. Like, here is your uniform down to the underwear, right? So why is the company giving her like bikini type underwear that her ass crack is going to be showing out of or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah, at least they didn't have her in like a bustier and like, you know, a a fucking bra or something. She was in a t-shirt, you know, um, very thin t-shirt, I should add, but... (sighs) I don't know. I never, I never viewed it that way. Maybe because I'm a gay man. Yeah. I don't.
0: Yeah. And I don't, I don't look at women the same way that straight men do. Right. I mean, I obviously can find the beauty in women, but I don't look Mm -hmm. at them as sexual objects. And so when she takes her clothes off, like the, the first thing I think of when I see her ass crack, when she's bending over, is not like, Oh my goodness, you know, like how wonderful that is. Like I, to me, it's like, she's very exposed and, vulnerable to a situation which really heightens the fact when she just like discovers the alien she's like what the fuck you know i'm already half naked what am i gonna do you know yeah so if
1: i were to change i think just changing that one shot to be a little bit more over the shoulder or more of a realistic angle for her to look at that binder and that would just change everything because it it all makes narrative sense like i said you know, so I think it's just that one shot that, that gives people like, OK, what are we doing here? You know, and I think that's why it's a conversation, because it's not a conversation because, you know, there's people that are just wanting to whistleblow anything that they could possibly whistleblow. It's it's a conversation because it's a real thing, you know, that makes people feel real, real emotions. And uh, I think there's a lot to say about the male gaze, et cetera, et cetera, in film. And um, is, is this one of the offenders? Maybe. But is it, is it a bad offender? Is it a is it a major you know thing is it a major uh sin i don't i don't think so
0: well a, a lot of the study of alien revolves around like sex and 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 gender and things like that and so i think it's impossible to to not talk about this particular moment in a movie based upon those things that we are seeing like throughout the entirety of the two hours right but mm-hmm. i mean i i take it or leave it i guess but i like i I kind of like her vulnerability in that state because she's been such a strong woman throughout it and we need to see her at a vulnerable moment before she ultimately succeeds in destroying the creature which is in itself a very intense moment when she shoots it out of that airlock and it's still attached to that grappling hook and crawling back up to it and you're like oh my fucking god is there no end to this like monster and then it's (laughs) and it's dead you know and I'm like good She, she won you know
1: yeah I'm just thinking could they could have they easily had her discover the alien before she undressed you know because she could have gotten into that space suit with her normal clothes
0: either way if we're going to see her go into stasis she's going to have to take her fucking clothes off she's not going to get yeah. in that stasis pod with a jumpsuit on and a cat. You know, she's gonna, (laughs) she's gonna get down to what she's comfortable in, what her body's comfortable in or whatever, you know, and I'm like, I'm I'm sure that, you know, people listening to this podcast have their own opinions, right? And this is, this is why we have social media. So tell us where you lie on Pantygate and Alien. Yeah. And if you don't care,
1: you know, that's fine too, because this is just one little, little tiny uh, debate about this film that has just continued on through the years and we just uh, we wanted to do it a little bit of justice by bringing it up so why don't we talk a little bit about the characters and the and the actors who play them
0: yeah i know that we've already discussed you know some more ins and outs of the characters themselves but I, I do want to talk about performances in this movie because i think that a lot of it is really top notch
1: yeah starting with sigourney fucking weaver herself as ripley really
0: i mean i am starting to you know, come to the conclusion over the course of our podcast since we started. And this is not the first time that we've talked about Sigourney fucking Weaver. We bring her up a lot on the film flamers. I think that she may really be like my second favorite actress of all time. I was behind Meryl Streep behind Meryl Streep. And I was thinking (laughs) about some of her other work and I was just like, God, she's just so good. Good And everything that she does as an actress, I have so much like praise every time I see a movie that has Sigourney fucking Weaver in it, even when she's playing a minuscule, tiny part. I just love the woman. So,
1: yeah. So she had only really Broadway experience at that point. She was relatively unknown in film, but she impressed Ridley Scott and Guiler and Hill with her audition. And she was the last actor to be cast for the film wow. and, pre- and perform most of her screen tests in studio on the sets that were actually being built at the time. So the role of Ripley was Weaver's first leading role in a motion picture. And of course it earned her nominations for a Saturn award and best uh, for best actress and a BAFTA as we said, award for most promising newcomer to to a leading film role.
0: And throughout her career, she's no stranger to the Academy. I mean, you think of like, you know, nominated for Aliens, nominated for Gorillas in the Mist the year after. And, you know, she had some Mm -hmm. supporting nominations as well. I think that she's highly regarded in, you know, like cinema history. And quite frankly, I love the way that she says people's names in any movie that she's in. She has a way of just like, Like saying, you know, Ash or Burke or whatever, you know, Andy and like copycat, right? And so, Andy, (laughs) I have decided for my birthday, if you could somehow get her to make a cameo video for me and just say my name over multiple (laughs) characters of her filmography, I could die a happy man. If she just says Robert in such a way that it like has all her characters in it, I would just love it. Damn it, Robert. (laughs) Robert, please tell me that we're going there to kill it, not to bring I'll have it back. To see, there's like
1: a Robert in like the ice storm or something, just so I can like. Oh,
0: I forgot about the ice clip. storm. I love Sigourney Weaver so much. I just do. God. Did
1: you ever see uh, a little miniseries for Snow White that was. Like for one of the things back in the day, she she played the, the evil stepmother. I have not seen it, but I mean, and Sam Neill was like the father
0: I, <laughs> that it, was married to It her. was on DVD the years that I was working in video stores. Right. And so I've always wanted to see it. There are some things that I've missed along the way. I still haven't seen Paul, you know, and so like there's oh, yeah, there's some Sigourney Weaver I need to catch up on. But I mean, let's like facts are facts, America. And like she is just a gifted actress. And when she like takes a role, she really goes for it. Always. And I appreciate Mm that.
1: Yeah. So... There, let's talk about Tom Skerritt as Captain Dallas a little bit, because he was actually pretty well known at that time. Mm-hmm. And then later on, like in the 90s, he'd be on uh, Picket Fences. He was in Contact. He's in been a lot of Steel movies. Steel
0: Magnolias. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: And he actually didn't initially want to join the film because he felt it didn't have enough budget or backing to become successful or match its own ambition. But when the budget was doubled and
0: Ridley Scott was attached to
1: direct, he obviously accepted the role.
0: Well I mean like if a budget is like doubled and he can get some money right of course he would take it you know mm-hmm. but I yeah. mean like I I like Tom scared in this movie, but I think that Dallas like from the get-go sort of seems like an expendable character to me right like it's not shocking when he dies I, I yeah it's shocking when he says I'll do it. Right. But there's a lot of sacrifice going on in this movie. Other characters sacrifice themselves in in various ways, you know, and, you know, when we start, yeah. but
1: he's the, I'd say he's the only one that really overtly Mm -hmm. sacrifices himself kind of knowing what he's getting into.
0: Yeah, I think he knows that he's not going to come out alive, right? He says that yeah. when he's like, close the ducks after me. And the, the, the look on Ripley's face when he says that, and she complies with his order, right? I mean, she knows that there's no turning back, literally, because he can't turn back yeah. at that point. And it's, I mean, it's, it's powerful for a captain to like, sort of like, go down with the ship or like, go before your crew. You know, noble, I think is the, the appropriate adjective for that. But um His performance is good. I think it's very understated, right? It's a different kind of Tom Skerritt role than I think we're used to seeing.
1: And then we get into Lambert, played by the wonderful Veronica Cartwright.
0: Oh, I also love her. I mean, we already talked about her in Witches of Eastwick, and I think this is another good example of her work. She was good in X-Files. She's good in Body Snatchers, too. I mean, like, she's she's good. She's no stranger to, like, science fiction or horror. Oh, yeah. I think that and
1: she'd had previous experience in horror and science fiction films, yeah. Like you said, the the uh, body snatchers as well as the birds. Yes, she's
0: one of those kids in the birds. You know, yes. I mean, like she plays scared so well right and especially in yeah. this movie i think that she gives a lot of like vocal terror to the already like building tension that's going on in the film itself i think that every time that she gets scared and she just one of her oh gods you know it's it's <sighs> right on top of you you're going the wrong direction Viscera. you know and yeah. you're just like oh my god go i mean like every time veronica cartwright says something you're like please do what she says she knows what she's talking about <laughs>
1: Now, she's so visceral in her reaction. She's a really good actress. And even just given the part of kind of like a scream queen in this, she just does such a good job. Yeah. She was originally read for the role of Ripley and was not actually informed that she had instead been cast as Lambert until she arrived in London for wardrobe. <laughs> right? She disliked, uh, you know Lambert's emotional weakness. But nevertheless accepted the role, saying they convinced me that I was the audience's fears. I was a reflection of what the audience is feeling. And, you know, she actually won a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress for her performance, so go her.
0: And she is absolutely right. I think she she is the audience fear in this movie. Like I just said, everything that comes out of her mouth just makes things even more intense. And, I mean, like, she's not a weak character when they're going down to get those coolant tanks for the shuttle, right? And they know they're in, like, deep peril. She does what she needs to do. She is, like, heavy lifting, pushing, pulling, doing her job, you know, to get herself to safety, you know? But I love her in calm moments, too.
1: Like, at the very beginning, and they're, like, looking to see what system they're in. And and Sigourney, you know, Ripley keeps going, it's not our
0: system. And Lambert's like, I know, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, found it. We're, like, bajillions of miles off. Sigourney. <laughs> <laughs> it's not our system. <laughs>
1: I know. She says, really gritted teeth.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I kind of wish that the two female characters in this movie got along a little bit better. I think that Sigourney is oftentimes pulling her Karen panties up, you know? I mean, not to like put too much of a word on that, but she's uh, oftentimes displaying her rank above Lambert. And I don't think that Lambert says things that are remotely stupid or silly. I think she has good ideas. And I think that being scared is okay. And to say, let's just leave. Let's get off this planet. When they're going through the ship, when they first discover it on that moon, she's like, let's just get out of here. She says it more than once. And you're like, by God, she's right. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Let's just take our chances. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. And then we've got Kane played by the wonderful late John Hurt. Yes. Who's just been an amazing amount of things, you know, if anything from like the more recent Indiana Jones movies to like V for Vendetta, you um, you know, 1984 just so many uh films that he's been in genre uh as well as others and he was the first choice but he wasn't available uh so someone else was cast instead however that actor became ill on their first day of shooting and john Hurt's other job had fallen through so was he able to um, so he was able to immediately replace That uh, replacement actor. So thankfully, we got John Hurt.
0: And he is really good in this movie. And I think that like John Hurt is really the first character that we get to see waking up from those pods, right? Can you believe he was only 39? (laughs) I mean, he... (gasps) we're going to get to hottest guys later on, you know, and there are some options. Right. But like, there are some times I see John Hurt in this movie and I'm like, okay, you kind of have this like British late seventies, like punk look about you or the way, the way he delivers lines or something, I think is incredibly sexy, but you know, for the character of Kane in a movie that's already rife with symbolism, I think that that character itself has, has a lot going on behind the scenes. Right. Like I said earlier, I, I, I kind of view him as a, a Christ figure in this movie. Aside from like The Last Supper, the first breakfast they have, uh, Parker's character looks at him and says, you know, you kind of look dead, right? And so like there's already foreshadowing there. And then whenever they are talking about going out into the planet, he is the first one to say, I will volunteer to be one of the first people on the planet, right? He's already sacrificing himself. He gets to a place in the movie where he's – essentially dead there's a creature on his face and they don't know if he's alive or if they can save him and he's miraculously resurrected you know and i mean like
1: yeah there's a lot of biblical overtones i think in some of the plot points especially around the characterization Mm -hmm. and Cain is definitely not an exception you could almost say he's almost an adam figure by reaching out you know and you know touching the tree of knowledge you know by touching that egg exactly and and getting the repercussions of that
0: And there's, I mean, there's not that many times that we can sit down and talk about a horror movie on this particular kind of level, you know, and I'm not quite sure that O'Bannon or Scott, like, wanted, this is what they meant by this particular character doing these things, you know, but I often think about, like, Simon from Lord of the Flies was never intended to be a Christ figure either, but that's how we view him today, you know, and so it just, it really excites me that we can, like, take a character and sort of, like, you know, Talk about its motives um as a like a part of the story and how it symbolizes things, like both in the story and things that we've seen previously is just amazing to me.
1: Yeah, but speaking of uh biblical, you know, allegory, you know, we've got Ash played by the late, the recently late Ian Holm, rest in peace, you know. Judith, no. You know, <laughs> he's like the betrayer, you know, in the midst.
0: <laughs> he is i mean he's like squarely the judas right and i think you can look at that last supper that they have and like he is like the master of side eye in this movie i he like for (laughs) real i just i mean so many props to him like he just he gives a really good quiet performance where he uses this like facial expressions to like further his character arc and it's amazing
1: and he is such a master at his craft he'd already been in 20 films by the time this film that
0: is so impressive to me. <laughs> like, really? I don't know. And he was
1: in, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens after that, mm-hmm. especially like um he ended up playing, like what, Jack the Ripper, you know, in Johnny Depp's uh, Jack the Ripper movie. From Hell, yeah. From Hell. Um, and, of course, he was in, you know, Lord of the Rings as mm-hmm. Bilbo Baggins and just a plethora, a plethora of other things. He's been so good.
0: So what do you think about uh, Parker, played by Yafet Kodo?
1: Well, uh, you know, Kodo actually said he turned down a lucrative film offer to be in it because he loved the script so much. Um, you know, he had, he was offered the part after his last film had done so well, which was the James Bond film Live and Let Die, uh, which I haven't seen in quite a while, so I don't really recall. But um, I feel like he really brought, you know, he and Brett, played by Harry Dean Stanton, um, you know, really brought the, the foundational you know gritty realism to the to the characterization they really were the anchor i think to the cast As far as its its realism, uh, for for just normal blue collar workers, you know, just doing their job, you know.
0: And you're absolutely right. I mean, like every good story needs to have like an everyman character that people can like, you know, identify with and be like, if I were, on a commercial space vessel, what would I be doing? Obviously, I'm not a captain or an executive officer. You know, I would be an engineer. And even then, I think that these two characters are far smarter than I am about anything involving that ship and parker's character especially is very heroic throughout this movie i think he has lots of good ideas about what to do about the situation and he's like you know what we're talking about like blowing it out the airlock we're talking about this and that yeah. i just want to kill it
1: you know and i, I he hand makes those flame units yeah for them and- i
0: mean he's ready to destroy this creature and i just i i love it love it yeah yeah And, of course, Harry
1: Dean Stanton is Brett, uh, who hated monster and sci-fi movies, and told Ridley Scott that when he
0: was auditioning. And, of course, that made Ridley laugh, and so Harry was cast. So I've already talked about how Alien is pretty important to my mother, right? Because she was pregnant Mm -hmm. when she watched this movie uh, with me. But my father also really enjoys Alien. They saw it together with my dad's brother. And my dad talks about this movie, and when he talks about the characters, he doesn't bring up Tom Skerritt that much, even though he was a you know a well-known actor, he doesn't bring up Sigourney Weaver that often, but he really talks about Yafet Kodo and Harry Dean Stanton quite a bit. He identifies with these characters and he likes them. In fact, so much that when I watched this movie for the first time and I was just like, Who is this actor? You know, this this black actor. And he was like, Oh, Yafet Kodo, like he knew his name off like the top of his head, because he had followed him in movies like Bond, right? Yeah. And so I mean, I it goes to show you that anybody can really like attach themselves to this movie and so many ways and i think the characters are just like you know a really good integral part of that experience of watching alien here here i think every character
1: is justified in this i don't think there's any you know anyone i would take out or add i think this is just a really perfect characterization i think we got a perfect group of different people different backgrounds different personalities um and you don't really lose track of people like when you watch prometheus or covenant these crews are just like who can tell the difference between like one or the other. Right. You know, they don't really have distinct personalities and everyone here does. And it's done in such a short amount of time. My God, even with the, the, the pacing, which we'll get into next, um, we know this crew and all of their personalities, the setting and the plot and the setup and all within 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. At roughly around 30 minutes is when he touches the egg and he gets the face hugger. By that point, we basically know who this crew are. And I think that's a really
0: um, important and interesting success of the film. I agree. I mean, like the movie itself, and I, I will I will die on this hill. A movie or story is only as good as its characters, right? And if you can't identify with them, either love them or hate them, right? Then the movie is not a success. And I think that Alien, as far as it care as far as its characters go, you love them and hate them enough to want to see them survive and it's meaningful when they die you know and that's incredibly yeah. important in any movie let alone a horror movie and so like the acting in this movie the performances are just like just phenomenal and support everything that the visual storytelling is pushing forward
1: yeah so let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the tone and pacing of this film a little bit because i think that's what really really makes it work you know, um, as, a, as a consistent whole, right? So the tone and pacing are extremely consistent due to the writing, acting, production design, music, but especially the editing. So the editing and post-production work on Alien took about 20 weeks to complete. And uh, Terry Rawlings served as the editor, having previously worked with uh, Ridley Scott on editing sound for The Duelists. And so Scott and Rawlings edited much of the film to have a slow pace to build suspense for the more tense and frightening moments. Rawlings said, I think the way we did it right was by keeping it slow funny enough, which is completely different from what they do today. And I think the slowness of it made the moments that you wanted people to be sort of scared. Then we could go as fast as we liked because you sucked people into a corner and then attacked them, so to speak. And I think that's how it worked. And as we mentioned, uh, despite having given Alien an unfavorable review in 1980, Roger Ebert revised his opinion in 2003. Ebert included the film in his Great Movies column, ranking it among the most influential of modern motion pictures, and praising its pacing, atmosphere, and setting, saying, "...one of the great strengths of Alien is its pacing. It takes its time. It waits. It allows silences." The majestic opening shots are underscored by Jerry Goldsmith with scarily audible, far-off metallic chatterings. It suggests the enormity of the crew's discovery by building up to it with small steps, the interception of the signal, its a warning, or an S.O.S., the descent to the extraterrestrial surface, the bitching by Brett and Parker, who are concerned only about collecting their shares, the masterstroke of the surface murk through which the crew members move, their helmet lights hardly penetrating the soup, the shadowy outline of the alien ship, the sight of the alien pilot frozen in his command chair, the enormity of the discovery inside the ship. So I love that he came back and he and he really like kind of awarded this film its due. Based on its pacing, specifically,
0: that quote almost just like made me tear up a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like it's it's so wonderful to see someone who originally like will poo poo a movie and then come back and be like, "I was wrong," you know? And yeah, there are often times in this podcast that we will say, you know, we didn't appreciate this movie on this particular watch, but I think that Chris and I are more than willing to give things a second chance, right? And I mean, it it just goes to prove that not only was Roger Ebert a masterful film critic, you know, and severely missed these days, but like, I, I don't know. Do you think that a lot of people came out of Alien disliking the movie?
1: I mean, I I think a lot of people initially did, as we know, when it first came out, it got some mixed reviews, especially from male critics. And so uh, I think we'll, we have a whole segment where we're going to talk about some of the psychology behind this film in which I'll bring some of that up.
0: So, I mean, based on the people that I know who have seen, who saw it at the time, right? They, they were scared. They were shocked. They loved it. Right. And I know Mm -hmm. this movie made a lot of money. And I think this may be one of those moments where, you know, critics are like, "Eh," and the general public really like latched onto it. And people had to go back and just be like, you know what? The populace was right. This is a well-made, well-regarded movie, and once we get into some of that like psychology and study of the film, I think we'll realize why Alien has left a lasting impression, but I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with the differences between like the look and feel of this movie as compared to other like science fiction or horror movies that came out at the time.
1: Yeah. So of course, you know, the studio wanted like a Star Wars, right? And like, what's on our desk? And basically, this was the only script. And so of course, with Star Wars, Alien, etc., we kind of get this look and feel like the late seventies gave birth to a dirty ass future, <laughs> you know, filled I mean, with claustrophobia cool. uh-huh. and
0: grime and dirt and oil and sweat and tears. You know, I mean, people finding jobs that go out into like the depths of space. I mean, we have no idea like what, what this future is really. I mean, we have seven people on board the ship. We don't know why they signed on to do this. Obviously it's a massive undertaking for their lives. And we would assume they will be like compensated. Well, or maybe not so well based upon like the reactions of parker and brett right yeah but i mean like we have to wonder like what's going on on earth right now if the ship looks the way it does if space looks the way it does in this particular way what does earth look like you know
1: who's to say um you know i get the feeling like this trip was supposed to be extremely lucrative for them this was a multi-year contract uh, as we find out in uh, the sequel you know she had promised her daughter she'd be back for her 11th birthday Which he ended up missing, you know, so this was something that was going to, I think, set them up for a long time, just like some truckers can go out on, you know, weeks or sometimes months trips and they get a payout and they can stay home for a little while. This might be the opposite of that, where they could stay home for a couple of years or even set them up for many years to come. And I think that's what they were all working towards. And that's why there's such a disappointment, you know, when all of that kind of goes in the toilet.
0: Yeah, agreed. So if we're talking about look and feel of Alien, I think we can't not talk about H.R. Giger, obviously. Oh my god.
1: Yeah. yeah, there's this whole layer on top of the used universe that Star Wars doesn't have that most other sci-fi movies and any real sci-fi movies didn't really have until then, and that was Giger's cyber-sexual, biomechanical designs. And... O'Bannon had introduced Ridley Scott to the artwork of H.R. Giger. And of course, both of them felt that his painting of Necronomicon 4 was the type of representation they wanted for the film's antagonist. So he had already kind of created that painting of the main look and shape of the alien before that they ended up using for the film. And they began asking the studio to hire him as a designer. And there's some drama behind that. But Ultimately, the first second that Ridley saw Giger's work, he knew that the biggest single design problem, maybe the biggest problem in the film, had been solved. And that the alien... Design has been referred to as one of the most iconic movie monsters in film history. And its biomechanical appearance and sexual overtones have been frequently noted, which we'll get into later. And of course, the design of the chestburster was inspired by Francis Bacon's 1944 painting, Three Studies for Figures at the Base of Crucifixion, which is just a disgusting painting, you know, as we saw in memory, the documentary about Alien that came out recently.
0: Oh my God, you're right. And I just like, I'm having some sort of flashback right now too. I mean, like, maybe my fucking observation about him being a Christ figure is not completely my own, but I thought I was being real fucking smart. (laughs) Back. But on
1: top of this design, uh, Ridley didn't want to show over too much. He wanted everything kind of cast in shadow hinted at. You know, the kind of Direction of like what you can't, what you don't see can kill you, right? So Scott chose not to show the full alien for most of the film, keeping most of its body in shadow to create a sense of terror and heightened suspense. The audience could thus, you know, project their own fears into the imagining of what the rest of the creature might look like. He said, Every moment is going to be very slow, very graceful, and the alien will alter shape so you never really know exactly what it looks like. He went on to say, I've never liked horror films before because, in the end, it's always been a man in a rubber suit. Well, there's one way to deal with that. The most important thing in film of this type is not what you see, but the effect of what you think you saw. The Xenomorph ultimately had just four minutes of screen time in the film.
0: And was played by a man in the suit. Really? Yeah. But I mean, like, too masterful effect, you know? I um, never quite knew the name of the man who played the alien in this movie until I paused it while watching it on Amazon, and it had its name on there. Yeah, he was a cool
1: guy. He did, like, Tai Chi and different things to to kind of make kind of a little bit more otherworldly movement. So his name was uh, Balaji Bodejo? Yeah. And he was Nigerian, and he was a 26-year-old design student. Mm -hmm. So and he was, of course, six foot ten inches, seven feet inside the costume with a really slender frame. And so it just really worked.
0: And there are some really good moments of him being in that suit, you know, that I mean, I know for only four minutes on screen and, you know, Scott saying, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a man in a rubber suit. He made it scary. That actor in that suit, especially in like the scene where Dallas is killed, where he's in that air duct and you see it for a moment and its hands are open and they're sort of webbed and it's just like, I'm going to get you. And then it cuts like immediately away from that. I mean, it's super, super effective. And for a movie called Alien, you would expect to see it ad nauseum throughout the film right Mm -hmm. but being so sparsely used makes makes all of its moments so effective when she's in the shuttle and she's trying to leave get into stasis we already talked about how it blended into the scenery right but like just like the subtle movements of that alien at that particular moment are just like jarring and scary and tension filled and just everything that i think scott wanted to accomplish in the film
1: well, it all works together because I think some of the most effective horror uh, behind things like Lovecraftian horror or cosmic horror is that there's so much under the surface that's unknowable or that you right. just don't know. And when they go in, into things like the spaceship and they see like the space jockey there, you know, the fossilized corpse and everything, and it's never explained, and they see the enormity, just like Ebert said, of that discovery, but can't explain it, don't know why. They know there's this massive... You know, background to this, but it can't be knowable. And that just adds to
0: the horror, right? And that's why it's so effective. I mean, I'm certainly scared watching this movie. I've already answered that question before we even asked it. I think I answered <laughs> it many times already in this episode so far. So but <clears throat> so Alien itself is a very special beast, if you will, of a horror film. It's it's studied, it's analyzed. We talk about Everything from, like, its, its origins, which was a documentary recently, and the history that led up to the making of this movie. And I think that we would be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, some of these things about Alien.
1: Yeah. So Dan O'Bannon uh, was, was, of course, the writer for Dark Star and did it with John Carpenter. And it had, of course, that beach ball alien and ended up being kind of a comedy, I guess. <laughs> and, of course, Dan worked on Alejandro um, Jodorowsky's adaption of Dune. That never got made, but has this, you can actually go and buy this book about it and it's just, and there's a whole documentary on it. Have you seen the it's documentary? It's Um, massive. I've seen parts of it, yes. And it's filled with production design from H.R. Giger. Yeah. And, you know, they used a lot of that for Alien and even some later designs that he had done for like Covenant and Prometheus for the engineers uh, ships and bases and things like that. So he wanted to do something a little bit more hard horror, right? And so he initially called, um, wrote a script called memory, of course, which was, you know, the documentary was later called. And, uh, it was written with uh, an H.R. Giger monster in mind, as Dan hadn't seen any art ever, which was so horrifying yet so beautiful at the same time. And after some of the work on the script, of course, the title was changed to Star Starbeast. <laughs> <laughs> cool, but, you know, Smartly was eventually changed to Alien, liking that it worked as both a noun and an adjective and that the, cre- the, you know, the characters say it so much in the script, you know. But Dan stated that he didn't steal the idea of alien from anyone. He stole it from everyone. Literally. Yeah. So the thing from Another World from 1951 inspired the idea of professional men being pursued by a deadly alien creature through a claustrophobic environment. Forbidden Planet from 1956 gave Abandon the idea of a ship being, you know, warned not to land and then the crew being killed one by one by a mysterious creature after they defy the warning. Planet of the Vampires from 1965 contains a scene in which the heroes discover a giant alien skeleton this influenced in the strobos crew's discovery of the alien creature in the derelict spacecraft of course and o'bannon also noted that the influence of junkyard from 1953 a short story by clifford d simak in which uh, a crew lands on an asteroid and discovers a chamber full of eggs also strange relations by philip jose farmer from 1960 covers alien reproduction and various ec comics or titled uh, titles carrying stories in which monsters ate their way out of people So there's a lot of influences on here and he freely admits that. I love that. He just kind of brought all of this together along with Giger's designs. And it was just like this match made in heaven.
0: I mean, we oftentimes on this podcast talk about like homage, right. And how like filmmakers and screenwriters, you know, look back on other horror, right. I mean, like we wouldn't have scream if there weren't, you know, a whole series of slasher movies before it It doesn't make them any less effective or any less original. And the difference, I think, between, like, this and some sort of blatant ripoff of, like, Alien that would come, like forever after this movie is that O'Bannon had a very clever script, a very clever story that included elements of everything that he had seen before, right? Yeah. And if we're talking about like aliens in film, the nineteen fifties are very important because like it's it's all about the Cold War. It's all about what people in America were feeling. They were trying to find a way to like put it into some sort of like symbolic way to to say it on screen and i think that o'bannon and scott did the exact same thing if you look at the 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 late 60s and into the 70s when we talk about like free love and gender expression and and all that stuff i think that all of these things are represented in this movie he did the exact same things that all these filmmakers in the 50s did from a 70s perspective and i mean it's just incredible to to watch and to see where his like ideas came from and where he came from as a screenwriter to to make this particular movie and later this month when we go through our top 10 of aliens or alien
1: movies and horror cinema uh, i believe robert will be bringing a lot of that history to the table
0: yeah i've been doing a lot of reading about like science fiction and a lot of watching too so um i look forward to that
1: I think also what O'Bannon did here, uh, regardless of how much of this is homage, is really just what we, we know now of as design thinking, right? taking what has worked and then iterating on that. So he took all of these ideas that worked and all of these other movies that, that may or may not be as good as Alien or as successful as Alien, obviously, and kind of put them all together and iterate on that until, you know, you you get some gold. This is a really good example of, of, of I think, just iterating on really good ideas and putting them all together. So the script was pitched to studios as Jaws in Space, and uh, he nearly sold it to Roger Corman's studio before, which I'm kind of glad they didn't, but mm. uh, before a newly formed production company called Brandywine with ties to 20th Century Fox bought it. And of course, there was some drama with studio heads meddling, such as adding a subplot of Ash being an android which O'Bannon later admitted was one of the best
0: things about the film. Yes. yes Can you so that- imagine if Roger Corman made this movie? I know. <laughs> I mean, like, I would love it for different reasons. <laughs> so. There were,
1: there was a bunch of directors attached to this over the time, you know, but I'm just really glad that they landed on with really Scott. Yeah. But, of course, Fox wanted a fast follow to Star Wars. Uh And this was the story set in space, the only script sitting on their desk in space. So it was greenlit for production with a small budget, but Ridley Scott got attached. And so with Ridley Scott attached, Fox was so impressed by his storyboards that they actually doubled the budget to support it. So instead of emphasizing fantasy and science fiction, though, Scott wanted to double down on the script and the horror and make Alien like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space, right Mm -hmm. down to the gritty realism. And the chains. (laughs) <laughs> that's true
0: yeah so it's, i i can see parts of this movie that seem like a star wars ripoff right so you know like we talked about the visual like storytelling overload that we see in the first like <laughs> oh the
1: reveal of the ship just reminds me so much of the death star
0: reveal from yes. star wars one yeah you know they're like the the ship is flying over and we're seeing how massive it is and everything and i was just like star wars okay yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: Well, one good design change, I think, from Star Wars is that they made the ships, you know, at least the mothership, you know, kind of not aerodynamic at all. It mm. literally looked like an oil rig in space, yeah. which is perfect, you know, for what it was. Um, it wasn't the shuttle. Of course, the shuttle has to go down into atmosphere. And so it was a little bit more aerodynamic. But I, I did like that change. And it looks a lot more industrial, which, which is kind of storytelling in and of itself, too.
0: Well, this, it's part of the story, I mean, because we're like everyday people like doing a job in space, right? They have to do mm-hmm. that. It has to be that sort of way, right? And you can still hearken back to the way that people felt when they first saw those opening moments of Star Wars, right? And seeing like huge ships in space and whatnot, and then just changing it into something else because this is not the same kind of movie as Star Wars, right? This is a horror film. Yeah, So the studio might have wanted a horror-esque Star Wars, but what
1: they got was actually more akin to 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, horror version of, which is already horror-adjacent, at least in its final act. Um, the pacing of some of the space scenes, as well as the scenes where Ripley is like, setting up the self-destruct of the Nostromo are especially reminiscent of Kubrick's 2001, like when he's shutting down Hal yep. and everything. It's very reminiscent of her trying to do the self-destruct and undo the self-destruct. Some of the the slow, you know, music-led space scenes, especially the beginning and the overture, are just very reminiscent of 2001 as well. But, you know, after Blade Runner, Scott never really used this, you know, that masterful use of slow, steady pacing. And I think some of his genre work after that suffers from it, especially, you know, when we're looking at his own alien sequels, Prometheus and Covenant, the camera doesn't, stay for very long in these gigantic alien vistas. And the pacing is much more of a, you know, two thousand nineties, two thousands era action movie. And, you know, I really wish he'd, he'd gone back. And uh, I'm realizing now with all this research that a lot of that pacing was due to this editor specifically.
0: And yeah, I, I know that there are a lot of hands in the making of this movie, right? Like Ridley Scott did not do it all his own. I mean he didn't he didn't Absolutely. write the script, he didn't have idea of the story, he came on to like make the movie and it took people to show him like, yeah, we need to use Giger's work in this and like there's lots of hands in the creating of Alien to make it as special as it is. I do like Ridley Scott as a director. I like Blade Runner quite a bit. When we were talking earlier about what life was like on Earth at the time of this movie, it could be like Blade Runner, you know? And But after that, I think he sort of loses steam. And you talk about his genre work afterward, it wasn't until The Martian that I really liked Ridley Scott again, you know? I, if we ever talk about Prometheus and Covenant, which I assume we will because why wouldn't we? we were invested in this franchise? You know, I, I have problems with those movies, you know? And I, yeah. I, th- I think that the, the series itself got better when it was put in somebody else's hands throughout time. <clears throat> I mean, cause I, I appreciate alien three and I appreciate, resurrection as well you know yeah i feel like
1: i I got the sense that ridley was really kind of taking on someone else's baby here with you know dan o'bannon and giger and everyone else that was involved before he ever came to it you know and so i feel like between the studio and dan o'bannon and ridley scott they were all kind of checking each other's kind of stupid decisions in a way and we'll continue going through that because there's more uh to what could have been uh, in the story and what could have changed. We already know that the studio wanted the uh, Ash to be an Android, which was a good decision. Agreed. You know? And so um, there's things about the end, there's things about the music, you know, that that Ridley decided or was overridden on, which I think were good. So everything just kind of ended up working out for this movie in some sort of Christmas miracle, which was <laughs> it's kind of cool. <laughs>
0: If only this movie released at Christmas time, that would have been the perfect thing to say about it. It's like <laughs> a springtime miracle. It's a May miracle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of the music, the beautiful, wonderful haunting score was done by. It is amazing, Jerry Goldsmith,
0: one of our favorites.
1: So, Ridley Scott originally wanted the film to be scored by Esau uh, Tamita who, based off of his work and Ridley Scott's very next film, I assume. Would have used synthesizers in the vein of Blade Runner, but from what I've actually listened to, it sounds more like Mannheim Steamroller. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really glad the studio stepped in and said we want a more you know orchestral yeah. sound because, of course, Ridley really loved those. Um, you know, he was on the bandwagon in the in the 70s and 80s with the synthesizers. You know, and I'm so glad that he didn't. I mean, uh, for you know jerry goldsmith had worked with him on legend and he threw out his entire score and they only used it overseas and they used tangerine dream you know for it, which is awesome you know but at the same time it works for it you know and i'm glad that vangelis did such a good job on blade runner but i just can't imagine a score based on what i've listened to to usa tamida you know would have worked as well as, as jerry Goldsmith's score here
0: i don't think that i've heard any of his work it's man, I assume.
1: Yeah. But, you know, there were several battles with the score and the placement of Jerry Goldsmith's cues to match the original temp tracks used. But in the end, Ridley did praise Goldsmith's score as full of dark beauty and seriously threatening but beautiful. So uh, he originally had created an original like overture that was too beautiful and sweeping for Ridley. So he made Jerry Goldsmith's score a much more subtle, less noticeable one. Um, Jerry Goldsmith's original and beautiful overture themes can actually be heard on the soundtrack, which he put together himself, titled End Credits. Even though it isn't what was used as the end credits in the actual movie, and what was used in the actual movie was uh, Howard Hanson's Symphony Number no. Two. Which is always kind of, uh, which is also kind of used as the end track as she's killing the alien, um, and it was carried over into the end credits. And of course, this was something that really got on the wrong side of Jerry Goldsmith. So when he put together his own soundtrack, he was given his own budget to put it together. Uh, he used his original, a lot of the themes at least from his original overture into. Uh, the soundtrack so it's called end credits so
0: now you listed this movie in our top 10 horror scores episode oh yeah yeah and
1: you know this score also really sets the stage for the whole series with like the referring creepy flutes motif Mm -hmm. you know which we hear in alien or sorry aliens as well as some of the the other um sequels which other composers have picked up for like prometheus and Covenant. And, um, I really like that motif. It's, um, light and beautiful, but it also kind of speaks to the emptiness and, you know, creeping dread of, of space and, and everything else. So, um... While I love the the beautiful elements to the score, that's the thing that really kind of made its way through the DNA of the of the Alien franchise. And musically, the Alien franchise is, is uh, very good. And we got James Horner for the second one, which is an amazing and famous score. And then we've got um, Elliot Goldenthal, who did, mm-hmm. of course, Interview the Vampire, as well as a huge amount of other movies, did Alien 3 for an amazing soundtrack there. So it's uh, musically the, the Alien franchise, um, at the very least the first three. Um, have excellent excellent scores set up as a foundation by jerry goldsmith here i
0: mean we can't talk about alien or the entire franchise without like saying something like you know there's so much atmosphere up in here right and like the (laughs) score really provides a lot of that it really is a beautiful score haunting in places and like scary and frightening and loud in the places that it needs to be but it's those like quiet space moments that I just remember from this like score so much it's and the single
1: like, horn, na, 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 yes, na, na, na.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's just beautiful
1: and I I love the shit out of it. Yeah. Speaking of things we love the shit out of, let's
0: talk about some of the psychology <laughs> of this film because there's a lot. Lord, we've already said that this movie is studied to no end. I mean, like, everybody in their dog has, like, written a paper about Alien. I think that a lot of people who are going through, like, film school, you know, or, like, like film studies or whatnot will gravitate toward Alien. Because it's sort of, just, like, rife with things to pick apart and to dissect and to, like bring your own like thoughts into yeah and we've already talked about like the tone and the
1: sparsely showing and filming things in shadows and you know the horror of you know lovecraftian cosmic you know horror with everything kind of below the surface and the unknowable and all that but i think specifically here we want to talk about the horror of male penetration and the sexualization of this monster (laughs) starting with our lovely face hugger, which originally they were going to paint green, by the way, until they saw it on set pre-painted and it was flesh colored. And it was so gross and, and wonderfully disgusting looking that they had to do that. And of course, as it, that first scene where it jumps out at Kane it's it's, it's literally male, you know, facial rape. It's like a suffocating. It looks like it's, it's opening looks kind of like a suffocating vagina or, you know, or something like that. And I think, a lot of this is why, especially male critics, you know, they're so used to seeing, uh, you know, the usual female victim and slashers and everything else. You know, I feel like some of the early critical reviews of the film influenced were influenced by the shock of real male discomfort, as opposed to the usual, you know, female victimhood.
0: Yeah, I mean, so when you're talking about the face hugger, I I completely see that, right? I mean, but it's it's. Well, talk yeah,
1: about and the chestburster is phallic and sperm-like, and then the alien itself is a phallic head and tail with, like, a vaginal in inner mouth, you know? Right. So all of that feeds into it.
0: It's a huge combination of, like, different genders and different, like, sexual ideas. This movie itself, I think, especially as far as, like, creatures are concerned and how they, you know, attack the people involved, is very, very sexual, um... I recall the scene where Lambert is killed, right? And the alien has grown to its full form by then. We already know that it has that inner mouth, right? But it's not using that inner mouth to kill her. It's focusing on the tail. The tail is winding up around her leg and so close to her vagina. Right. And I'm just like, you can't tell me that some of the stuff wasn't intentional in some way. I mean, like these people knew what they were doing. And so everything about this creature is so incredibly sexual in the way that it kills people. And
1: it's like, but mostly, uh, you know, it's killings are centered around the men, especially visually. You know, with the the face hugger and then the chest burster, and then some of the closer scenes we get with the inner mouth with some of those men, you know. O'Bannon himself later described the sexual imagery in Alien as overt and intentional. He yeah. said, one thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. I said, that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually <laughs> and I'm not going to go <laughs> after the women in the audience. I'm going to go attack the men. I'm going to put in every image I can think of to make the men in the audience cross their legs. Homosexual oral rape, birth, the thing that lays eggs down your throat, the whole number.
0: And it's effective as... Buck. I mean, like, really. I mean, like, I. This is coming from a place of a gay man, right? And I don't all. I don't really think of myself as the most masculine person on earth, you know. And I, I oftentimes, feel more feminine than anything else, right? And even I feel a sense of like intrusion into the male body in this. And I, I don't think it's wrong to put that on film. I think that a lot of times, like women, are the, the. the butt of horror movies, right? And they they get killed in all these like terrible ways, and it's kind of refreshing to see a group of men in space doing their jobs, like dying in the most like horrifically sexual kind of way. Yeah, like I'm I'm not I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, but I think it. <laughs>
1: I really think it made a lot of those people uncomfortable and they hadn't seen that before. And they were used to being safe and the person that held the hand of the woman by their side, you know, and in this, it was like the opposite. It was like, all of a sudden they are the victim. They're the ones that have to watch out, you know, it's, it's, it's it's attacking their psychology. And I think that was, you know, uh, as disgusting and horrifying as it is uh, important. uh, Yeah. You know, as, as kind of a milestone in horror. And I'm not sure any other horror has really, you know, uh done it on this level before you know since even the sequels you know it's just this movie standalone that really attacks a men specifically with this level of psychological horror
0: no i agree i think like the the only movie i can think of that like deals with like men and sexuality and like being scared and being sought after because of it would be like it follows right but that sort of like doesn't it doesn't matter what it's gender you opportunity. are. opportunity yeah. i, I kind of want to look at the thing in a way as well yes
1: but that's not exactly sexual either
0: you know and i think that this opened the floodgates for this i think that a lot of movies in the early 80s into the mid 80s like sort of explored this like dual sexuality when it comes to like kills and creatures and things like that and the way that it affects like your idea of your own sexuality or your own like sex organs and things like that and we sort of like lost that i don't think we've seen a lot of that like from 90s on you know and i I don't know why. I mean, eventually, I'm sure we'll sort of like cycle back to it. But it's, it's
1: like this movie had the ultimate statement on it, and everyone's too afraid to try and get up to its heights or something, you know? Exactly. I mean, that's exactly overt.
0: right, you know? And I think that there's a reason why that people especially scholars keep going back and talking about this particular movie from this particular facet, right? There's something very Freudian about Alien, you know, from a psychological standpoint, from a gender standpoint, a sexual standpoint. And, you know, the more that people talk about it, the more they uncover what's going on underneath it. I think that we can sort of get to the idea of what we all feel in our own bodies and minds and what it feels like to be penetrated, to be impregnated, you know? And it's like, it's a really... Weird thing to think about from a male perspective, and I'm I hope well, especially that, as a
1: straight male perspective. Exactly, you know, yeah, being you know you know uh, basically sexually attacked. That's not what they're used to thinking about or fearing.
0: And I hope that some straight men walked away from this movie going like maybe I shouldn't like. <sighs> <laughs> you know worry so much about penetrative sex think about my partner you know and things like that like i hope it opened up discussions or at least opened their mind to the idea of what it feels like to be on the other end of penetrative sex you yeah know? and of course we know
1: that that there is a, a problem with you know you know sexual violence in men um but it's just nowhere near the amount uh you know that that women have to deal with on a day-to-day basis so this this movie kind of turned the tables a little bit on that psychology.
0: So with all this being said, right? You know, let's go back to Panigate for just a minute, right? Mm-hmm. So we've seen all of these things happen to men. Like we're talking about clearly putting ripley's character into her costume with that particular moment do you think that they did that purposefully because they've subjected these men to all these different things that they've seen and felt and they're like oh finally we get to see a woman in some panties you know i I mean like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, maybe I am just like severely overreaching at this point in our conversation. I think it but... was
1: meant to just, you know, compound the idea that she's safe, you know, mm-hmm. and that she's getting ready. You know, it's the end of the film, and you can sigh, you know, a, a breath of relief. If men are getting, you know, an extra sigh, <laughs> you know, f- from seeing that, then incidental, maybe a little bit, um, you know, shot through the eyes of the the straight male filmmakers, you know, whatever. I We've we've talked about this, and you know, there's some gray area. Obviously, um, there's discussion to be had, but I th- I think at the end of the day, it was it was really meant to just compound that that sigh of relief, that moment of, of calm before the final terror.
0: After having this discussion with you about Alien and watching it two times, you know, to get ready for the, the podcast episode, I want to go back and talk to my mother because she, she has always told me stories about how it felt to see that thing burst out of her, out of that man's chest, you know, whenever she was pregnant with me. But I also want to go back and talk to my dad who was sitting right next to her during this movie and say, do you realize like the things that you saw? Did you feel a certain way? Like if something's going down your throat, you know, like... Like, did, did you feel a certain way about it? I'm very curious to feel like what he felt or understand what he was going through as well. You know, I, I hope that he was uncomfortable just as much as my mother. You know, did so. you empathize with Kane when he was school fucked? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my parents constantly making me the horror fan that I am today by showing me Alien at a very young age after they saw it while I was in utero. You know what? Maybe that explains everything. Like, I was (laughs) deep inside the womb hearing Sigourney fucking Weaver, right? Like, battling this alien to the death, and I came out just ready to watch Dan O'Bannon's Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. (laughs) So I've got some fun facts. I... Have been waiting for this since we put Alien on the docket. So lay these fun facts on me, please.
1: All right. So some of them are just you know extra things from uh, that could have been placed in the conversation that didn't exactly fit. So who knows if they're fun or just you know eye opening. But they're facts. I was looking up the name Nostromo, and it's it's the title of a famous book about a brave uh, sailor who lives in a fictional South American country of Castagüena, in the port city of Sulaco. And, of course, Salako is the Mm. name of a ship in the movie Aliens, right? And the word Nostromo itself is is Italian for shipmate or bosun. And in the book, Nostromo saves his city and its leaders from revolutionaries, but is ultimately viewed as a useful tool, or expendable, if you will, by the leaders he saved. And in the end, is shot and killed without ever getting acceptance or gratefulness from them.
0: That's very impressive to me, and I know that, like... Alien as a franchise is, like, super big on, like, mythology and lore behind it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, Prometheus itself is a huge, like, mythology word. So I these, this happens a lot in the Alien franchise, but that is fascinating to me. Well, the book
1: Nostromo is theoretically on this list for, like, the top 100 English language books of all time, you know, depending wow. on, on what list you're looking at. So apparently it's something we sh- we should all read at some point.
0: Okay. I've never read it, so I'll look it up.
1: So the planet was not named in the film, but I think some drafts of the script gave it the name Acheron after the river, which, you know, in Greek mythology is described as the stream of woe, which is a branch of the river Styx and forms the border of hell in Dante's Inferno. The 1986 sequel, Aliens named the planetoid as LV 426, and both names have been used for it in the subsequent expanded universe media, such as comic books and video games. Uh, Interestingly, Leviticus, I looked up the Bible verse, Leviticus 426 states, and all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. I'm not sure... What that means, some people think it has significance to the story. I'm not sure. I did look up some people that did, you know, tie these things. But I do know that the planet in Alien Covenant was named LV 223. And Leviticus 22.3 states, Say to them, if any of all your offspring throughout their generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel have dedicated to the Lord, while he has an uncleanliness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord.
0: My god i mean like even just talking about how i feel like kane is some sort of christ figure in this movie we've already talked about like sacrifice right from a biblical sense as like compared to this movie but like clearly there's some deeper message going on in alien from many standpoints and i just i really enjoy a religious conversation about fiction i just i do i I love finding things like that so this is again for me yeah there's
1: all about this yeah there's a a lot of ties here that go back to like this visceral biblical like history to like humanity or something if you believe in that sort of thing but it's uh it's all about like sacrifice and you know not touching things you shouldn't and you will be punished if you do and you Mm -hmm. know (laughs) burning and you know everything else but i digress
0: i mean i'm so here for it though
1: so what else you got the spacesuits the actors wore were thick bulky and lined with nylon and had no cooling systems initially Ugh. no venting for their exhaled carbon dioxide to escape so combined with that and a heat wave uh the conditions nearly caused the actors to pass out and nurses had to be kept on hand with oxygen tanks
0: God, (laughs) that is commitment to a role. Good job. That's like Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, and uh, John Hurt, for sure. They were Mm -hmm. in those suits for a long time in this movie. Yep.
1: For the filming of the chestburster scene, the cast members knew that the creature would be bursting out of out of John Hurt and had seen the chestburster puppet, but they had not been told that fake blood would also be bursting out in every direction from high-pressure <laughs> pumps and squibs. So Veronica Cartwright's scream is the actual <laughs> scream of surprise and shock when the chest exploded and she was sprayed with blood.
0: I fucking love that because I've already quoted it so many times. She's like, oh, God, as soon as that blood hits her. <laughs> It's, that's amazing real. to me. And all of the actors it.
1: that jump back and they're just like shocked was real, you know, mixed with, of course they're acting and they're in the moment, but they're also <laughs> really, inter- <laughs> you know, acting and reacting to that moment because they hadn't been shown the effect.
0: Ooh, that's good filmmaking.
1: Yeah. And the scene is of course, frequently be called one of the most memorable moments in cinema history. In fact, in 2007 empire named it as the greatest, you know, rated 18 moment in film ranking it above the decapitation scene in the omen and the transformation sequence in American werewolf in London.
0: I I mean, uh, that's so close. Like all those things are so good as far as like horror movies go. But I mean, I have to like at the end of the day, agree the chest bursting scene in alien is so effective and well shot and well acted and just a really good moment in cinema history, not just horror movie history, but like movies itself.
1: So there was this, uh, of course, well, this movie wasn't really premiered, right? And so it had just all these diff- different screenings. And the Hollywood screening is very famous because that's the one that a went to and a couple of the actors and some of the filmmakers went to. But there's a scene in which Ash is revealed to be an android and a puppet was created of the character's torso uh, and upper body, which was operated from underneath. So during a preview screening of the film, the scene caused an usher to faint. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that was part of the the story of its release, I guess. Um speaking of I, I know that earlier we mentioned like some of the, the different parts of the film would have been different due to different like meddlings of the director and the writer in the in the studio. Originally, Alien was to conclude with the destruction of the Stromo while Ripley escapes in the shuttle Narcissus, and that was gonna be the end. Right. However, Ridley Scott con, uh, conceived of a fourth act to the film in which the alien appears in the shuttle and Ripley is forced to confront it. He pitched the idea to Fox and negotiated an increase in budget to film the scene over several uh, several extra days.
0: And thank God, because the ending of this movie is amazing. I
1: can't imagine the film just ending there comparatively. You know? Yeah, in, an explosion. And I'm
0: like, and yeah. like drifting off to sleep. No, that's not good. I love the ending to Alien. Good job, Ridley.
1: However, Scott had also wanted the alien to bite off Ripley's head and then make the final log entry in her voice. <laughs> 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 but the producers vetoed the idea as they believed the alien should die at the end of the film. And thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made this like completely camp. By the film would have ruined it. Ruined.
0: Ruined. <laughs> Oh my god, that is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever. And heard that can be
1: scary. We've seen that in the ruins. We've seen that in Annihilation. Um, I know, but I'm picturing the Xenomorph
0: going like, "This is Ridley signing <laughs> off," or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> no. No, the little mouth should say that. It should open his yeah. mouth and the little mouse is like, this is Ridley. I mean, no, that's ridiculous. You're right. That's, that's super like the campy. Spaceballs
1: version of this, you know.
0: I <laughs> was <Where it's> like, I was going to bust out and start singing that fucking song. Yes. <laughs> no, save that shit for the spoof, Ridley. <laughs> yeah. So lastly,
1: there are several stories about the premiere of the film. Um. You know, of course, there wasn't really one just around of screenings, but Dan O'Bannon had the bad experience with the reaction of Dark Star. And with all the friction of the writing of Alien and all the changes and stuff, he just couldn't bring himself to show up at the Hollywood screen. So he got drunk and drove around town drunk aimlessly until he changed his mind and raced back to the screening, parked and found that uh, people were lined up around the block. And so they sat him down in one of the seats. And as people reacted to the film and applauded after it was done, tears were streaming down his face.
0: I will have to say that every time my mom talks about this movie and going to see it, she she went to what was called the Forum Mall, which is in Grand Prairie, Texas at the time, and they had to wait in line for hours just to buy a ticket. Oh, (laughs) wow. Yeah, so... There was commitment to seeing this movie.
1: So, because there was no premiere, Veronica Cartwright said that she was not given a ticket or kind of any kind of event to go to to screen the film, which kind of pissed her off. She had to buy her own ticket and stood in line for hours at the Egyptian <laughs> Theater. And so, when people started leaving the theater after the chestburster scene to go barf in the trash cans outside, she was like,
0: "Wow, this is great!" <laughs> she, she got a front row seat after all. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> So
1: when Tom Skerritt saw the film, someone running the theater told him that the movie had really messed up their bathrooms because people were running into them and barfing during during every screening every day. But thankfully, they didn't have to deal with that anymore. And, and Tom was like, why? Why don't you have to deal with that anymore? It's like, oh, we just cut that scene from the movie. Oh, fuck. So they, they went to the reels themselves and cut out that scene.
0: That's ridiculous. <laughs> they should not self-edit films. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I worked for a company for a long time that people accused that of, and it may have happened, didn't happen in my blockbusters. But I mean, I know that people can do that sort of thing. And which there's, is there's other
1: stories, too, like people getting up from their seats and, and leaving. And the and the filmmakers are like, what are they doing? And they found out when they looked behind them that people were literally just standing at the back of the theater watching because they didn't want to be that close to the screen. Mm. And then that's, that's when of course, and, and all the reactions and people barfing and, and all the drama and people standing at the back, but not, not wanting to miss it, but not
0: wanting to be close to the screen and, and all of that. And they applauded at the end. That's when they knew they had a hit on their hands. There are certain movies that I imagine seeing for the first time in a the theater and Alien is always one of them. You know, I've never seen this on the big screen, you know, and I've, they've released it a lot, um, you know, after the fact, but I still haven't seen it in a theater. And I think this is one that I probably should eventually. Yeah. um, I managed to see it at Alamo
1: draft house and aliens. Um, No, you know, and of course it's not the same because everyone's pretty much seen it before. Um, I'm sure some people brought along people that have never seen it, but you know, those reactions are not what they would have been in 1979. Uh, This was incredibly shocking. We have the benefit of having seen everything that's come out since then and everything before. And it's hard to kind of see this in a vacuum with only having, you know, imagine having seen what came out before it. And I can't even imagine, you know Um, also, I just want to say the look of this film, it looks so good compared to so many films that came out in the seventies, even eighties and Mm nineties. It just looks great. The lighting, the high contrast scenes, um, you know everything. It just it just looks very modern in certain, especially uh, in that final act where there's all the strobe lights and everything going on. You just didn't see movies looking like that really. Even Star Wars looks kind of 70s, especially the first one, uh, in comparison to Alien. And so, I just uh, I'm just kind of blown away by how good it looks given its age.
0: As a whole, yes. I know that like the movie itself looks amazing. Like we talked about the the set design and like the sound design and the cinematography and everything is working in this movie. It's like furthering the script along. The story is only as good as the way that they made this movie. And to me it's like almost perfect, if if not perfect. Right. But we're going to get into that now. It's one of our questions. So let's just start those, shall we? So um, were you scared while watching Alien? Oh, certainly
1: the first time. And like I said, I think the scariest point was, you know, watching um, Dallas go into those little tunnels where he had like no space. And it was just you didn't know where it was. And you had the motion tracker, you know, it was one of the and of course, that's one of the smartest things they bring back in aliens is those motion trackers, you know, it's just I see it's there, but you can't see it. You know, and it's just so masterfully done. And, um, of course, there's those shocking, scary moments uh, of the chestburster scene and, 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 you know, the facehugger attack and those things. But I think what really makes this film work from a horror horror and scared standpoint is it's just building tension and suspense and what's not there on the screen and, you know, and the payoffs for those. Um, So, yeah, it scared me certainly the first time I saw it as a kid. And it still scares me and makes me tense today. I think I, I the first thing out of my mouth... Being alone in my apartment after watching Alien, I was like, that was a stressful-ass movie.
0: Yes. (laughs) this stressed me out. I'm tense. (laughs) I mean, I completely agree. The first time I watched this movie, I was a kid, and I was horrified by it. By far, it had been the scariest thing that I had seen up until that point, right? And for some reason, you know, my mother thought that I was, like, okay enough to watch it. And I had seen many horror movies before Alien. But this one you know, to my young child mind was the scariest thing that I had seen. And I just developed so many memories of alien from a visceral scare. Mm -hmm. And then as I watched it into like my teenage years and into my twenties and thirties and now my forties, because I try to watch alien at least once a year, like, something different scares me about it and you know currently in my 40s it's like the 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 tension and the unknowing about like what's going on around them you know like I, I really appreciate the acting <clears throat> and and what that brings to the story right does that make sense and oh yeah so i mean like that's just where i'm at now so i've gone from a visceral like scare to a like a deeply narrative scare in alien and i just i i can't think of a time that i will ever watch this movie and not be affected by it or scared by it in some way
1: completely agree
0: it is a classic yeah with that being said then is alien a horror movie <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, (laughs) clearly this is a horror movie. I mean, there's, there's like sci-fi twinges into it. I mean, it's, well, it's a sci-fi movie as well. Right. But I, I think that it is most effective on its horror like moments and not its sci-fi. Well, I think
1: definitely as a marriage made in heaven, it utilizes both, you know, genres to their, their best. You know, I don't want to discount its sci-fi elements. I certainly can't discount its horror elements, but um, I think they're, you know inseparable the way they braided them
0: together and melded them to make this, you know classic that is alien. And they sort of have to in a movie that's called Alien, right? I mean, we'll get into some sci-fi horror, like, history later on in the month. But, I mean, um, as far as Alien is concerned, you're right. It is a really good marriage of sci-fi and horror. And I really appreciate sci-fi movies that are sort of grounded in reality. Like, nothing in Alien seems that far out of reach today. And I can imagine, in 1979, maybe seeming a little out of reach, but... Not that much. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really grounded sci-fi film. So, Yeah. So, out of five stars,
1: what would you rate Alien? I believe it's one of my very, very few, and when I talk about very few, I mean like maybe three or four films, that I have actually rated a five star.
0: Yeah, I agree. This is a five star movie. Yeah, I sure. almost
1: just on this latest rewatch, I almost brought it down to four and a half just because of specific shots or things like that. And I, I put this movie on such a high pedestal that I don't know whether I would give something a four and a half for another movie just because of one specific shot or that specific sound effect or something like that, you know? And I think uh, for what it is, I don't know that I could make it any better with any of my ideas. So the fact that it's a classic, the fact that I keep coming back to it, that is almost like infinitely rewatchable that it does so many good things um you know so well uh from multiple standpoints you know i have to just say that this is something to aspire to uh for sci-fi and horror and other genres to look at and um you know that's why I think I, I'm going to maintain it at my five star level
0: as much as I love Alien I and you know I, there are other horror movies that I like better like it's it's not it's not my favorite horror movie right but I will continuously watch it and I've always felt this little like kinship toward Alien but watching the movie now as an adult I can appreciate the levels of filmmaking from every aspect that goes into it from like score to sound design to production design to acting to direction to writing and it is a perfect movie it is just so well made and so enjoyable and like it's totally five stars all the way yeah right so i I will always love alien so finally and some would say most importantly who's the hottest guy in alien
1: I'm curious to see what you would say, good sir. Probably Tom Skerritt as Captain Dallas, the bearded wonder, the fearless leader.
0: I would also say Tom Skerritt is the hottest guy in this movie. Although, like, I get shades of John Hurt sometimes. Like, he kind of has this, like, late 70s British look about him that looks look good. And also, like, I've never, ever, ever, every time that I've watched Alien or any other movie that he has been in ever considered Ian Holm to be remotely attractive. But something happened while I was watching this movie. And maybe I was just like looking back on him with some sort of remembrance or whatever. But he's got some really like good moments. He's given some side eye. He's shirtless. They try to make him look not so short in the movie. And I was just like, okay, I get it, you know? He's not hideous.
1: As far as John Hurt's concerned, when I said he was only 39, what I was meaning by that is that he looks so much older. <laughs> <laughs> he, looks like he, he looks like he's he he looks like
0: been 60 for 40 years. Like uh, Parker said, anyone ever, ever tell you you look dead? I mean, <laughs> come on. So, but we'll save this conversation for aliens that we cover, you know, next week because there's a lot of man candy in that movie. I'm looking forward to this question next <laughs> week. Ooh, we have a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion on Alien. I know this has been a long episode, but Chris and I love this movie. It's one of the few horror movies that we share, you know, in our top ten, I think. And, like, we just had a lot to say about it.
1: Yeah, we were really nervous about trying to do it justice. At least I was. (laughs) So that's probably why there's just so much content in this episode. So hopefully you uh, stuck around and you enjoyed it.
0: And please let us know what you think about the content or what we think about aliens or what you think about alien. We really want to know. Reach out to us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can even find us on Letterboxd where we put some of our top tens and other lists. You
1: can email us at TiredQueens at FilmFlamers.com or call our hotline and leave us a message about what you thought of Alien in this episode at 972-666-7733. We'll play that message on our next Shooting the Flames episode and respond to it.
0: Also on Shooting the Flames, we like to call out our patrons and reviews. So if you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, just head over and leave us a five-star review. And a snippet of why you like our podcast, we'll read that on Shooting the Flames. And head over to Patreon.com slash TheFilmFlamers to find all of our bonus bonus content, and early access to episodes like this one for as little as $2.
1: And this month we'll be covering They Live as our companion Patreon episode to our Aliens motif this month. So go over to
0: Patreon and join the club and check that out. That's right. And the reason we are talking about They Live is because our patrons voted in a poll and decided what we were going to do. So you can have your voice heard over on Patreon. Just go over and join the community. (sighs) Finally, we can't talk about Alien and not talk about Quarantine just a little bit. We never talk about our merch here on the Film Flamers, but we're living in a very special time that everyone needs to have a mask on their face lest you want to go back to quarantine. So if you go to our website and click on the merch button, you can find your very own Film Flamers face mask, put it on, save a life. Actually, Chris, I think we've gone we've got so far into Alien, I don't think anyone can hear me scream.
1: That's right. This is Chris and Robert, the last survivors of the Nostremo. Signing off. But before we do, <laughs> we're gonna have some <gasps> sweet, sweet dreams.
0: Jonesy. Jonesy. <laughs> <laughs> come here <you> little shit <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't we have a Silence of the Lambs moment? You know? <laughs> like
1: <fuck. laughs> I need, like, a standalone Aliens movie with just Jonesy. Like, kind of a Milo and Otis thing.
0: I mean, like, if we look at horror movies, so we have, like, Dawn of the Dead remake, Commitment to that Dog. We got Silence of the Lambs, where she's using that dog as, like, her Oh my tool god, to get we need
1: Expendables, but we, we we need it, like, with just, like, the horror pets.
0: <laughs> the Expendables of Horror Pets. <laughs>
1: Yeah. The
0: cat from (laughs) Aliens. There's lots of dogs. The goldfish from Poltergeist. Oh my god, you're right. But Jonesy would be the leader. I love that cat. I want that cat. Finding Jonesy. (laughs) Just keep meowing, just keep